Friday, April the 17th, 2020. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said. Sometimes I really got that announcer voice right away. Friday, April the 17th, 2020. Thanks for tuning in to another. Love this episode coming up. First up, NFL. We're going to go through every team in the NFL, basically like a first-round mock draft with uh, Eric, who you've heard on here before. We talked with Eric all about free agency. And we hit on every team. We tell you what we think, uh, who we think they'll pick in the first round. We go through all of the picks they have, what their team needs are, and then we go through all the teams that don't have a first-round pick. So we're going to go through, I mean, everything. Really, really good information. Uh, an excellent NFL draft breakdown. Then it's going to be time for some ice-cold Dave Weaver. We talk uh, Los Alamitos with Dave Weaver. Big fields this weekend, Friday night and Saturday night. Dave takes us through the early pick for Friday, gives us a best bet for Saturday, and we check in with Sophie, the hottest star in horse racing. Sophie cinches out at Los Alamitos are doing great. We say hello to Dave's daughter, Sophie. Uh, then we, I'm going to go through racing for Friday, Oaklawn, Friday, Gulfstream, Saturday, Oaklawn, and we'll finish things out with a WrestleMania recap. We go to WrestleMania 13. It was the greatest match in the history of WrestleMania. Yeah, I'm saying it. Brett the Hitman Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. WrestleMania 13, 1997. Where were you? We go through the entire card match by match. We set the scene we lay the land. Well, let's not let's not dilly dally or waste any more time. Let's get right into our first interview. We're gonna talk football, kick back and enjoy. We go picks one through thirty-two, team by team, starting with the Cincinnati Bagels. Who are they gonna pick? What are their team needs? What is it gonna look like later in the draft for them? And what are all of their draft picks? How many picks do they have um, on NFL draft weekend? Enjoy as we get into football right off the bat. The NFL draft, uh, they are continuing on, so we have lots of draft prep for you, and we bring on our good buddy Eric, uh, who did such a great job when we talked uh, football in, in the season, giving us some some games and some plays, we talked some XFL, we talked some uh, NFL free agency, now we're going to hone in on the draft. Eric, buddy, uh, how you holding up? Staying safe over there? I'm trying to, trying to, man, working out a lot. Like I'm like my dad told me the other day I'm like Rocky in Rocky nice. Four getting ready for Drago with how much I'm working out. So there you go. I'm uh, yeah. I got back into the some of my uh, DDP yoga uh, this week too. So uh, hopefully getting getting uh, toned back up a little bit. Also, I can do that right here in the in the home too, which is nice. You know, we don't, we don't have to go out and do anything crazy. So um, let's uh, let's get right into it. We we've got a lot to to discuss though. There's not a lot of you know, live sports going on. We've got some uh, some horse racing, some wrestling to to talk about. You know, and as far as things that are uh, still going, but the NFL draft that, that's great that we're we're going to continue on with this. It's going to be completely different this year because it's going to be a virtual draft. We're going to have Roger Goodell announce um, the first round picks from his basement. We are going to have um, teams all connecting and interacting with each other um, via Zoom and Skype and FaceTime. They've had to do all their a lot of their prep. Um, you know, since the combine, basically like virtually and interactive. So it, it, I mean, it'll be different, but I think a lot of these teams, they've been working on stuff for so long. You know, this isn't like they just flip the switch and then all of a sudden, like it's draft. They've got, you know, staff and people to, like that are, that have been 
looking into this for a long, long time. So it, I think a lot of the work is now okay, talking to each other, seeing like how all the coaches, all the staff feel about you know certain players and and, and team needs. Oh yeah, I mean the only thing that would really hurt someone is a couple people have some medical mm-hmm. issues, and the NFL teams are so anal about making sure it's their doctors doing the testing that that's the only really thing that could hurt any of these prospects yeah so let's we'll be here for a while let's jump right let's jump right into it we'll hit it on it we'll hit on everything we're gonna go like a kind of like a mock we'll go through the first round team by team and we'll talk about um who we think we might they might pick in that spot and kind of what the team needs are and then we'll hit on i think there's you know six teams that don't have a first round pick and we can discuss them following so you know the first few look to be i think Pretty straightforward um, For the most part unless I think the Bengals Get some kind of a massive trade offer They gotta be going Burrow here And they can do a, they can do a pretty good job In this draft because they dealt with Some of their like defensive needs or at least a couple Of them um, in the uh, in free agency So if they can get a get their future Quarterback maybe O-line um, Maybe a tight end and, a, and another like receiver and a receiver Heavy draft where do you think they go In their first few spots the important thing to remember with them is last year they drafted Jonah Williams, who is a top-rated tackle out of Alabama. So they're basically going to have two first-round picks coming in next year. Mm-hmm. Um, they're obviously going to take Burrow. That's a no-brainer unless there's a home-run trade offer from the Dolphins or the Chargers or maybe whatever other team, the, the Raiders maybe, that need a quarterback. And then um, the second-round Pick. I think they're going to go with Patrick Queen or Kenneth Murray, one of the linebackers, if they're still on the board, or they need to build up that offensive line to protect Burrow. So Cesar Ruiz, the the versatile lineman from Michigan that can play any interior guard position. Uh, second up, it will be the Redskins, and it feels like you know we all think Burrow is going to go one. A lot of people have Chase Young as the best player on the board overall. That feels like a fit. Um, I mean, if it's not, do they they do something crazy and maybe they take a swing on someone like Tua here? Who knows if with the new coach in, maybe he's not sell, uh, you know set on Haskins. Um, it, they could use some wide receiver, offensive line. I mean, they have they have some holes to fill here. They have a lot feel, of holes. It feels so. It feels like when you have a lot of holes, you probably just go best player, right? I think it would be idiotic if they don't take Chase Young. Yeah. Chase Young is going to be able to come in. And he's just going to make everybody on that defense better. He's going to make the DBs better because the quarterback's going to have to go his progression quicker. If they decide to double him, whoever's on the opposite side of him, they're going to, he's going to be rushing the quarterback in the sack. So immediately he's just going to uplift that defense. So taking him is just a no-brainer in every, everything in my eyes. And then they, their next pick is until the 66th pick, which is in the third round. Then they'll address the offensive line with Matt Purrett, the kid from uh, UConn, or Ben Batch. Also, they could trade Trent Williams, add another third or maybe a second rounder because they still have him on the team and they're looking to get some draft capital for him. And uh, the Bengals, uh, they have pick number one, number 33, number 65, number 107, number 147, number 180, and number 215. The Redskins have uh, the number two overall pick, as you mentioned, number 66. Then they have a couple in the fourth round, uh, 108, 142. They have a fifth round pick, uh, 162, and they have a a couple seventh rounders, uh, 216 and 229. Now it's your squad. The Lions, is this one as simple as uh, Okuda here? 
I think this is where the draft like actually really starts because there's so many questions. Yes. Are the Lions going to trade or are they going to stay put? The three rumors that I'm hearing are the Dolphins, the fifth pick, then either the 26th or the 39th pick. The Chargers, they would send Desmond King, their defensive back, who's in the last year of his rookie deal, the sixth pick, and a third-round pick. Or I also heard that the Patriots may offer the 23rd pick and then two future first-round picks just to get up and get a quarterback, which for the Patriots who never trade up is kind Ooh. of unheard of. Do you imagine them trading up and like taking a swing on, on Tua? Or Herbert. I heard they really yeah. like Herbert. Okay. So, like, I that would be interesting. But I feel the Lions are in such a win-now mode that they wouldn't take the Patriots offer. Um, since they're in a win-now mode, their biggest need is Jeff Odula, the DB from Ohio State, who's he's nails in my eyes. This guy's a shutdown corner in the Patricia system. You need a shutdown corner, totally replacing Slay. And then the second round, if Cesar Ruiz, the guard from Michigan, is still there, I could see them taking them. Or they could go after a pass rusher, A.J. Esman from Iowa State, or Yatar Gross Matos from Penn State, or Terrell Lewis, because they need someone opposite for Flowers to really get to the quarterback. So the Lions have uh, the number three pick, 35, uh, 67, 85, 109, 149, 166, 182, and 235. So they have the opportunity to, to get a little bit better here with, uh, with a, good, uh, a good foundation of, uh, of picks in this draft. The Giants last year grabbed their quarterback. They got their running back a couple years ago, um, and it feels like the GM here is one that genuinely likes to take the, the big offensive lineman. Do you think they go O-line here? I if I was the GM, I would go O line, but I feel that Simmons is such a freak and he's gonna be so good at the next level, you kinda have to take him. But it wouldn't surprise me if they do go O line because they do need to protect Jones, get some running lanes going for Barkley in the backfield. And they could trade back into the second round because I have a feeling that Josh Jones is gonna be available at the end of the first round. So yeah, their team too that that does they could they still have a lot of holes too that you mentioned. Uh, um, so is it maybe edge offensive line? Uh, they could use a, a wide receiver also, a tight end, probably a safety. Is like they get farther into the draft. They have the number four overall pick, number thirty six, ninety nine, one ten, one fifty, one eighty three, two eighteen, two thirty eight, two forty seven, two fifty five. Now the Dolphins, man, this is the one of the more interesting teams in this draft because they. Have, they have a ton of picks They have a ton that they can do They made some Interesting moves in free agency Definitely to get better And is this You know this is a spot where I mean there's a lot of different things They can do like, Are they going to are they gonna go to uh, take a swing Herbert are they just going to say you know what Let's go best available and get a lineman here Or uh, you know Someone to help our defensive front I mean they there's a lot of ways They can go what do you think they do here At five they're really interesting And the thing that sticks out to me the most Is when they hired Chan Gailey I kind of looked into that And four out of five Fitzpatrick's Best seasons happened when he was in a in a Chan Gailey offense so that makes me think if they do take a Tua or a Herbert they're just going to sit all next year and it's just going to be Fitzpatrick running the show um 
I think which would maybe better. think give you give you more reason to even think they would take to Tua in that case because it's like you could give him a little more time. There's not pressure on him necessarily to be cranked up and ready to go. Exactly, and he could come in, learn. Fitzpatrick is a pro's pro. He won't throw a fit about a young rookie behind him. I do, however, think that they should take Willis or Weirs, whoever's on the top of their board, and then with the 18th pick, then they could go Jordan Love. They, I mean, they're loaded. They got 5, 18, 26, 39, 56, 70, 141, 153, 154, 173, 185, 227, 246, and 251. So, uh, I mean, they have... Five picks in the top two rounds. They can do a whole hell of a lot in this draft. They have, they still have, a, a, you know, some needs, um, and and they could use maybe you know some skill players uh, if they get that quarterback to put around them and some help on the line. But they're going to be a, a fun team to kind of see what they do over the next couple weeks because their team could be a, a lot different uh, than it is right now just through this draft. And another team who's a little interesting in here is the Chargers, uh, a Chargers team that has pick. Seven, uh, excuse me, pick six, 37, 71, 112, 151, 186, 220. It seems like they're kind of in the spot that the Dolphins are with Fitzpatrick in that they seem okay if they have to go through a year with Tyrod Taylor as their quarterback. And so maybe they're a team, you know, like we just said about. Uh, Miami, did they maybe take a swing with a Tua, with a maybe a project quarterback if they like Herbert and just not have to put the pressure on him early? I think I heard that they're going to run a version of the Ravens offense and they're okay. Taylor, Taylor starting this year. So it totally makes sense to me that Herbert or Tua, whoever's here, that's where they're going to be taking is just going to sit a year. The important thing to remember with them, though, is Bosa and Ingram are both entering the final year of their contract. So in the third round, they're going to look to Daryl Taylor, Nick Cole, or Bradley Annie to add to a pass rush because losing, they're probably going to lose one of those guys realistically. They can't afford to keep both. So they need to be able to keep that defensive line to get the pressure, especially when you play Mahomes twice a year. And then with the 37th pick, I expect for them to address the offensive line. Yeah. Go after your boy Jackson from USC. Sure. Or good fit. Josh Jones from Houston. Or I really like Matt Current from UConn. I really like that kid a lot. The Panthers just uh resigned or just extended Christian McCaffrey uh, earlier this week. He is now the highest paid running back in football. I mean, you don't love overpaying running backs, but he has been if you're gonna pay someone, I guess he's been one, you know, as good as any the last few years. The problem is it's not really resulted in a ton of wins for them And this team, I think they had to kind of do that for their fan base Because this would have been a, a you know, they would have been losing uh, Olsen and Keekly and Cam You know, all, all, in, one year. all in one year They yeah. kind of needed to lock down and say, okay, we have like a face of our franchise for a little while They they need a lot of help And it feels like they need a lot of defensive help in particular Oh, for sure And I think what they do, it all depends on what the Giants do if the Giants take an offensive lineman, then Simmons will fall down to them, and that would be perfect because they'll have the replacement for Luke. Um, if Simmons goes to the Giants, I think they're going to take Derek Brown, the defensive lineman, from Auburn. Then in the second round, that's when they'll attack the secondary. They'll go after Winfield, the safety from Minnesota, Jeremy Chin from 
I think it was Northern, Northern Illinois, and then either Jeff Gladlin or Bryce Hall at the cornerback position because losing Bradbury, that's going to be a big knock. Bradbury, in my opinion, was one of the most underrated players in the NFL last year. They have uh, picks 7, 38, 69, 113, 148, 152, 184, and 221. Uh, the Cardinals, this one feels, I guess, pretty straightforward in that, you know, you, you got your your quarterback, your franchise quarterback last year. You, you need some maybe some protection for him, but but they need a lot of defensive help, too. So I, I guess I wouldn't be shocked to see them go for like if if some one of these top defensive players drops to them, it wouldn't be a shock. But I feel like they, they probably go line. Oh, they have to go line. You have to protect Murray. Murray took way too many hits last year. So between Wales, Willis, um, Becton, or Andrew Thomas, whoever's still on the board, whoever's the top-rated one of those guys, that is will they'll go after if by some off chance there is a run on offensive linemen and those, those big four aren't available, they could trade down and then they could target C.J. Henderson from LSU. And then the third round, that's when they'll attack the defensive line – Devin Hamilton, the defensive lineman from Ohio State that played next to Chase Young this year, or Jabari Zungi from Florida State. They yeah, also they... need to – I'm not a big Drake guy, so I really think they need to get a running back Yeah, later on because it just – I just find it weird that two coaching staffs gave up on Kenyon Drake. Yeah, and, and that third, and if it's not, they don't go defense with that third pick or maybe the fourth. They might be able to get a running back because this is a draft that's, I mean, we may see maybe one to two running backs go if a team at the end of the first round wants to reach. I mean, like, what's the over-under on running backs that go in the first round? Uh, 0.5. Yeah, so that's what I mean. It could be, you know, none. This is, this is a heavy... The, the first round in particular and like the top of the second This is a heavy wide receiver Some good offensive yeah. linemen and some really good de- um, Like defensive front um, mm-hmm. Defensive players in particular as, as you know we've been mentioning all towards the top So uh, Cardinals will try to Definitely strengthen um, that offensive line 872, 114, 131 202 and 222 for their picks uh, The Jags They traded away Nick Foles so it's going to be Minshew mania it looks like Do they maybe see what is available on the quarterback board If there's a Herbert or a Tua available here Do they snag him Or do you think this team is thinking about quarterbacks From next year's draft And maybe they start to go other ways Like you know on the defensive side of the ball I just feel if they draft a quarterback In the first round They have to start him over Minshew yeah. So they just won't do that Yeah. Um, they have Najoku The defensive lineman who's made it quite clear He doesn't want to re-sign So the rumor is is they may trade him and the ninth pick up to the Giants. They would take an often one of the offensive tackles there, and the Giants would move back down to nine. Um, Jags are not going to be this good this year. It's going to be a long year in Jacksonville. And they no, need to add no. as much draft capital as they can, and I really think they need to build with defense. If they stay at the ninth pick, uh, Jarvan Kinlu from South. Carolina I really like him And then with, they have the 20th pick also Then I think the 20th pick they start to build Rebuild that back end Either with Trevin Diggs Stefan Diggs brother Kristen Fulton or Xavier McKinney The safety from Alabama And then the second round I would go secondary again Because that defense is 
bad and it used to be like a real stronghold for the team. And I think that's yeah. their foundation that they need to get back to. They had Bouye just and Ramsey, you know, it's not long ago. And then, uh, and they, they, they struggled defensively. That was like their calling card for a long time. So yeah, they have nine, 20, 42, 73, 116, 137, 140, 157, 165, 189, 206, and 223. So um, as you mentioned, they could do a lot in this draft. And, and I don't think they need to try to get too cute yet. Um, it's just best player available in a lot of spots for them. You know, just yeah, like just who's get the, the talent. They just need who, talent. Who's the best on the board? Like, yeah. let's just start to stack up right now um, as we move on to the Browns, who, you know, is, is a team that. You were like vocally against and and spot on with them last year, and and I look at the team this year. I just um, I feel like they've been they're being built much better this oh, year. Sure. Everything with the coaching staff to um, some of the moves they made in free agency. This feels like a good spot for them to to probably um, try to add to that offensive line. Oh, for sure. Browns need to keep building the offensive line. Adding Jack Conklin in free agency was a great first step. Um, they need to build it up with this 10th pick, whoever's available between Wiros, Belkin, Willis, or Thomas, they'll take them. If one of those is, if they're all gone, which I doubt would happen, then they'll address the secondary and take CJ Henderson the from Florida. Then in round two, they need to get better at the safety position. I feel after they drafted, Pe- excuse me, traded Peppers to the Giants, the safety was really Poor play, poor play for them last year. So Winfield or Davis from Cal or even Del Pert from Del Pitt from LSU. Yeah, they're in a good spot. They're in a good spot. They're going to get a good uh, some good top top level talent here to add to a, a team well, you, that I feel yeah. this yeah, is going to be bad. Conklin and what, if Conklin and one of those four, the team's weakness is probably the team's strength now. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. They Absolutely. Could, I'm gonna be have to I'm gonna have to bet on Baker Mayfield next year, and I'm gonna <laughs> I, I know, yeah. <laughs> you can't wait for that one. Um, we get to the Jets, and it's probably with these next three picks where the wide receiver train will start to come. Not sure mm-hmm. which which one initially. I mean, the Jets could definitely use a wide receiver playmaker, but they could use some offensive line help. They could use a defensive front. I mean, cornerback. They could even use a, another back, but that's that's going to be later on. Um, and then, you know, obviously the Raiders and then the 49ers in their spot, they're probably going to be looking for maybe a top-tier wide receiver too. So I feel like this might be where we start to see some of these stud wide receivers come off the board. Oh, for sure. The Jets, they need weapons. Jerry Judy or CeeDee Lamb would make a lot of sense. I was looking at sacks. Darnold got sacked 33 times last year and 30 the time before. So he's already on that path to be being David Carr 2.0. Yeah. That guy that got sacked so much when he played for the Texans. So if Andrew Thomas is there and it being such a wide receiver heavy draft, maybe it would be a better play long-term to take him and then try to get Michael Pittman or CJ Hamlin in the second round. But if they do go Jerry Jerry Judy or CD Lamb, then I think they'll go pass rusher in the second round. I'm hearing great things about Curtis Weaver from Boise State. And then uh, we get to the Raiders, who I think they'll they'll kind of be seeing what the Jets do and, and play off of them. But this feels like a really great spot to get a top-tier wide receiver. For sure. And this is interesting for me just because Gruden wanted Antonio Brown, and that totally blew up. And then I read that Gruden wants Henry Ruggs, the speedster from Alabama, but Mayak wants Jerry Judy because he's a better route runner. 
Personally, I think Judy is the best wide receiver in the draft because he can run everything in the route tree. He has the best hands. But when it comes to speed wide receivers overdrafting the first round, everyone always thinks of the Raiders because of Al Davis. So I wouldn't surprise me if they do draft rugs just because it's the Raiders. Then at 19, then I think they'll go DB, Christian Fulton or CJ Henderson if he's still on the board. Oh, sorry, excuse me. They'll go Christian Fulton. If they go DB here and draft C.J. Henderson with the 12th pick, then with the 19th pick, then they'll take Justin Jefferson. So, I mean, for them, for me, it's pretty easy. Cornerback and wide receiver. I don't know which one they'll take first and second, but that's what they're going to do. The interesting thing to me is what will the Raiders do if two is at 12? Because you and I both agree that Derek Carr is over yep. in Raiderland. Or if Jordan Love at 19, will they take a shot at one of those guys? Yep. And uh, the Raiders have picks 12, 19, uh, 80, 81, 91, 121, and 159. And I didn't mention the the Jets ones right before. They have the number 11 pick, 48, 68, 79, 120, 158, 191, and 211. And then we're to the 49ers who, you know, they got this pick from the Colts, I believe, with the trade uh, of Buckner. For Buckner, yeah. Yep, and... um, and so they could, you know, be in a spot to, you know, replenish that defensive line, but they might be in a really nice spot to get a wide receiver because they also lost Emmanuel Sanders and we know a lot of their focus is on the tight end. They could use one of these really good wide receivers, you know, and but keep in mind they do have a pick, uh, you know, another pick at the end of the first round, so maybe they, you know, they're they're not in a bad spot here um oh, to to kind of just go either or and maybe wait on the other. So how I think they're going to play it is I think with the first pick, they'll take Judy or Lamb, whoever's still on the board at that point. And then with the 31st pick, that's where it gets interesting. They could replace Buckner and draft Blacklock, the defensive tackle from TCU. Or since they have no draft capital between rounds two and four, they could trade back. Stack a few. Yep. And then attack the secondary because they need a cornerback and a safety in the second round, that's in the scenario number one. Scenario number two is with the 13th pick. If J- Javon Kinlu is still there, they'll take him to replace Buckner because he's a second-rated defensive tackle on, on the board for everybody. And then with the 31st pick, then trade back since the wide receiver depth so much, and they can take Michael Pittman, Brandon Anouk, Jalen Rager in the second round. And then you also have to remember – they have Coleman, McKenney, Mosert, Breida, Wilson, all under contract at the running back position. So I'll probably expect for them to move one of those guys and try to get yeah. Because yeah. I mean, not having any picks between two for between picks two between rounds two and four is pretty tough. Yeah, they have a uh, number thirteen, number thirty-one, number and then not till round five with number one fifty-six, one seventy-six, two ten, two seventeen, and then two forty-five. Um, we get to Tampa, and I'm. I mean, I feel like you got to be able to protect. Uh, you got to be able to protect the old man, right? You got to yeah. be able to protect the goat here. Brady is uh, is going to be a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. It's got to be O line with this 14th pick. They're in a win now mode. They have to go O line. If there's like a, if there's a run in O lineman, they'll probably trade up because they they need to improve that mm-hmm. because they he can't take hits. No, and they need he needs to be upright and he's not mobile at all. And then they need to add a receiving back in the second or third round. Yep. Either Kyle Edwards-Hilar, who's great out of the backfield. 
J.K. Dobbins or Cam Akers. More than likely, it's going to be Akers because I am really high in Akers next year. I'm going to have him on all my fantasy teams, offensive rookie of the year props. He's more of a, a ready, a ready to go oh, yeah. uh, prospect. Yeah. And but I'm going to be betting against Tampa all next year, and I'm going to have those two things going against each other, fantasy and betting. So it's going to be <laughs> Akers. I can just guarantee it. Um. So yeah, uh, and then after that, Tampa has a. Uh, uh, they have number 14 pick. They have 45, 76, 117, 139, 161, 194. You mentioned, I- I'm sure with some of the, the later picks, they'll start, they'll try to get that running back and then strengthen the defense a little bit. And then, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if if there was someone that fell to them, they took a swing on a quarterback, like a later quarterback as like a backup of someone if they like at value. Yeah. Because, you know, he's not, not going to be around forever. They're not obviously going to take, I don't think, one of the top ones. But maybe someone who... Who could be around and maybe be someone to, at least a backup or like a future um, a future guy that they they they're take high a on. flyer take a flyer on a Jacob Eason maybe yeah yeah he's someone got a like strong that. arm someone like that mm-hmm. learn from Brady see if it, it see if you can get anything out of him um, we get to almost the halfway point of uh, the first round we're up to the Broncos I mean they're we talk about the strength of the wide receivers in this they they feel like they need a wide receiver too is that is that as easy as Broncos getting a wide receiver here. I think it's pretty simple up until yesterday. I thought for sure because they have Shermer now, and Shermer is two tight ends, play action, go deep. I think Ruggs would have been perfect here. But then it came out like Elway's looking to trade up to get one of the big four offensive tackles. So if they do that, they could do that, trade up, get one of the big four, Willis, Burton, Wills, or Thomas, then look to trade with the 49ers and then address then address the wide receiver at the end of the first round. Number oh so the let's see. So other than that, the Broncos have Because the a, Broncos have a lot of capital. They have the second and they have yep. like three thirds. So I mean yep. trading up and then trading back in, that could that could work out for them. Yeah, they have 15, 46, 77, 83, 95, 118, 178, 181, 252, 254. So they're they're right nicely in the middle of that 2, 3, 4. Um, and I mean, get, being able to get, like, I think Pittman's going to be a good pro. I think oh, yeah, I, I do too. going to be a good pro. And those guys are going to be readily available at the 31st pick. So, I mean, taking an offensive line, trading up, taking one of the big four offensive linemen, or and then trading back in, that could that could work out for you pretty good. We're up to number 16 with the Falcons here. Um, they feel like one of the teams, too, that just that has to start stacking on the defense, right? Oh, for sure. I think it's a no-brainer. I think the Falcons and the Cowboys picks are actually kind of tied. I think the Falcons should go after Clavanian Kaysen, pair him with Dante Fowler to provide a pass rush, a good pass rushing duel. And then in the second round, then they target a defensive back, or they target C.J. Henderson and then target a pass rusher in the second round. So I think they're going to – I think for me it's a no-brainer. They're going to take one of those two because those are the two biggest needs. They have picks 16, 47, 78, 119, 143, and 228. And, yeah, for them, it seems like a lot of defense, w- what they really need. And the Cowboys – Kind of feeling similar too, right? Defensive oh, front, sure. linebacker, cornerback they could use, and then maybe like some O line and wide receiver at some point in the draft. But I feel like early on, probably defense. Oh, for sure. Whoever the Falcons don't take, if the Falcons don't take CJ Henderson, they'll take him. If they don't take Chase on, they'll take him. 
And then they'll look to add an edge rusher to replace Quinn in the second round, someone like a Terrell Lewis from Alabama. Or if they're able to get Case on, then they'll go after my boy Jeff Gladney from TCU. The big thing is in the third round, they have to make sure they get Chase Berry in the center from LSU because they need that. They need a someone, a, a high IQ guy running the offensive line to replace Travis Frederick for the early retirement. Cowboys have picks uh, 17, 51, 82, 123, 164, 179, and 231. We're up to pick number 18. It's uh, another pick for the Dolphins here. And so, you know, a lot of the Dolphins is going to depend on what they do early on. But, Nate, like, let's say they go, I don't know. I guess yeah, it's 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 hard to project, but they have they have a lot of needs. They have a lot of things they could fill. Maybe this is where they go, like safety. Oh, I love Xavier McKinney from Alabama. Mm-hmm. I think they could, should should take him if he's still on the board. But I think everything's all tied into kind of what they do, like you said, with the fifth yeah. pick. I mean, if they take if they take a QB, let's say they could probably sneak in Austin Jackson here or Josh Jones. Because there's going to be a run in offensive tackles, so they could reach for one of those. Or, mm-hmm. like you said, they could take the safety, Xavier McKinney. I also know they need someone, a running back, but I think it's way too early to try to get Swift. Yeah, that might be with their next pick, yeah, right? They could, if they yeah. want to reach for Swift, they could reach for Swift at 26. Um, because we, yeah, they have the 26 pick. I mean, they're loaded. We mentioned 39, 56, 70, 141, 153, 154, 173. Uh, 185, 227, 220, 246, and 251 uh, We're up to the Raiders here And let's assume that they take a wide receiver In that first spot with their 12th pick This is probably where they go, what, cornerback Fuller. maybe? Oh, Fullerton, Christian Fullerton, yep. LSU Yep, yep, yep. hands down um, And then we get to the Jags' second pick uh, They're at number 20 and I think a lot of it will depend too with the Jags What we said for them Just kind of keep stacking your best talent Maybe if there was a QB that fell to them For some reason here They, they would take a swing um, But I, I, think I would we, feel so bad for Jordan Love If he got drafted by the Jags Right, right <laughs> Yeah um, I think defense probably makes the most sense Maybe a, maybe a cornerback here Oh, Diggs from Bama and Diggs from Bama Fullerton's still on the board Because Diggs went before him Fullerton or Xavier McKinney But one of those three they got to start building up that back four. Yep, and then uh, after this pick, they'll have a uh, pick 42, 73, 116, 137, uh, 140, 157, 165, 189, 206, and 223. We're up to the Eagles. I mean, the the common, you know, discussion around the Eagles is they need more skill players. We saw it last year with some of their wide receivers. So are they kind of looking to see who's left in the wide receiver board? I have Eagles need a wide receiver, and Justin Jefferson makes all the sense in the world. Great hands. He can run all the routes in the route tree. But I did see something on Twitter, granted it's Twitter, that they could trade up because they want to get Ruggs, Lamb, or Judy. But with it being such a tight, such a deep wide receiver draft, I would try to trade back here. I think this is a good position because I one of their other holes they need is a linebacker. And I think you can get queen at the end of the second excuse me end of the first round and then in the second round you can get Pittman, uh brandon anoik chase claypool there there's a lot of wide receivers that you can get in the second round and there's gonna be be they're deep someone's gonna drop like we said 
Someone will trade up for one of the quarterbacks in reach or, And someone will feel the same thing with the offensive linemen When those runs go But we all kind of feel like there's going to be a lot of Some of these wide receivers are just going to It's inevitable, one or two are going to drop there, There's going to be wide receiver depth throughout this I agree with you and, and they have some needs too, right? Like it wouldn't be a shock to see them stack a running back later You mentioned the linebacker um, Wide receiver is huge for them I can see them, you know, center safety Are also positions that they could always uh, Always get a little depth into and so the Eagles have pick 21, 53, 103, 127, 145, 146, 168, and 190 We're up to the 22nd pick And uh, this is another one that feels like they just they have to go defense, right, with the Vikings I mean, they lost a lot on the defensive side of the ball They lost pretty much their entire secondary Yeah, I mean, three cornerbacks yeah. yeah, I think you have to draft A.J. Terrell from Clemson, I think he's a no-brainer, or Christian Fulton, whoever's highest on their cornerback draft board, that's who they have to take. They've got the 25th overall pick, too, so just a few picks later. So they have some needs, obviously. Uh, defense is big. Do just I guess we'll, we can hit on them right now because they have 22, 25, then they have 58, 89, 105. 132, 155, 201, 205, 219, 249, 253. Do you think with their two picks here, they're going cornerback wide receiver? I mean, at first I did, but the more I think about it, because I tend to overanalyze stuff way more than I should, they're going to be running the ball like 30 times a game. So, and their offensive line needs to get better. Sure. Josh Jones is very versatile. He's raw, but he's versatile. They could draft him, and he could play a guard or tackle. And then, like I said, is so deep at wide receiver. They could get a wide receiver later with that 58th round. pick or the 89th pick. And then also a rumor came out that they're going to talking to the Browns about Beckham Jr. You'd see that too, yeah. So, I mean, personally, I think it's trading one headache and then you're getting another headache in the locker room, but they do need somebody to, to keep... catch the ball. Yeah. To help yeah. on the other side of Thielen. Yeah. Plus like the thing with Thielen is his numbers when he plays the slot versus outside are night and day. He can't play the outside because he's playing against bigger DBs and he can't, he, they just out physical. So he needs to play the inside. So I need that physical presence on the outside. So, I mean, that, that is in an interesting trade, but I just think it would just be adding another headache to the locker room. I just think you're better off trying to get like a Denzel Mims or someone like that with this pick if you go wide receiver. With the 23rd pick, it's the Patriots. And uh, the Patriots, um, they have some needs, you know, obviously. And the big question mark with them is they're really going to go into the season with, you know, it looks like Stidham as their, their starting quarterback. If somebody falls here, do you think they take a swing on a quarterback? Are they a team that you you mentioned? Maybe a trade up. They could, I guess, if it's not that, they could use. We've talked about it for a long time. I mean, they don't have a lot there at the skill positions at wide receiver. They could use a skill position tight end. They could use a little help on the defensive side of the ball. But their defense is is damn good. It was really good last year. They lost a little bit. Lost some players to the Lions too. They're kind of a, a polarizing team here because. What do they do with their first pick post Tom Brady? To me, it's a no-brainer. If Jordan Love is there, you bring Jordan Love on board. You sit him for a whole year, 
and he just learns from Josh McDaniel. It's kind of yeah. like what the Chiefs did with Mahomes. Just sit him for a year. He learns, and then in 2021, he's your QB1. If by some off chance Chase on is still on the board, I think they can go after him. If Love is off the board at this point, they do need to improve their pass rush. So AJ Epsini or Uter Gross Matos could be there. And I, they could take there because they need to get get to the quarterback. Um, a wide receiver I mentioned before that I just think would be great in New England, but this would be later on, is Chase Claypool. I love this kid. And then when I dove into his story more about how he ended up in Notre Dame by posting YouTube videos, I like the kid even more. And he kind of reminds me of Marvin Jones. So, so maybe they he, trade down. Yeah, I think I, I, I love that kid. Um, and the tight end. There's this kid from Missouri, and I cannot pronounce his last name, but I was watching him at the Combine, it seems like, years ago. Um, Albert Okwebana. I can't pronounce that name at all. And they could take him, and he could just fit into that physical tight end that can make plays, and he'll be available in the third, excuse me, the fourth round probably. So, I mean, they're a team that's not afraid to, to trade down at any point and continue to stack. Maybe that's something they do here, but this is this is going to be different for them because we we just uh, many question marks for them at um, at the uh, at the quarterback position. So, or they could trade up because they got twelve picks. You know, yeah. they could make they could they could they could make a lot of noise in this in this thing. But Belichick doesn't really have a good history of drafting offensive people, though. Yeah, you're right. Which is so funny. We don't we don't. In particular, wide receivers, he hasn't done oh very well with too. Like a really, really bad track record. So they have picks 23, 89, or it's 23, 87, 98, 100, 125, 172, 195, 204, 212, 213, 230, 241. They could stack some of those, uh, a couple of those third rounds to move up if they need. They have later in the in later in the draft that they wanted to stack and move to like a more of a middle type, uh, another middle pick. So yeah, I wouldn't be shocked to see them moving around. Um, all over the board The next team is probably At 24 One of the the better Built set up teams They don't have a whole lot of weaknesses So they're probably in a situation where they're going Who's the best available Maybe if it's someone like Love Who's still around here Maybe that's a quarterback Or uh, they reach for a quarterback Someone they like as a backup for Breeze They can let him sit behind Breeze for, uh, for a little bit um, if not, I guess maybe linebacker, but they don't, they're one of the few teams that like, you can't immediately see a ton of needs they have in my eyes, the saints, they have the most talented roster from top to bottom in the mm-hmm. NFL. And like you said, best available. I mean, the only real weakness, if you really look deep is that linebacker. So that makes me think it's queen or Murray. They're the two top linebackers. Or their offensive line is getting a little old, maybe Jones or Jackson. Then in the third round, they'll probably add another wide receiver to go on the outside, um, a Quadre Davis, and then add a cornerback because they did lose Eli Apple, so Bryce Hall in, yeah. in the third round. Also, it's important to remember that this is Kamara's last year under his rookie deal. So there's this running back from Appalachian State, Darrington Evans. I watched a lot of Southern – Southern Sunbelt football, unfortunately, because I bet a lot of the minor <laughs> league footballs. And I like this kid a lot. He's a smaller guy, catch the ball in the backfield, shifty. And he's kind of like that, that type of player that would fit great in the Sean Payton offense. So I wouldn't be surprised, like, in pick 169, they look to go there because 
Kamara's in the last year, and I actually heard a rumor that he could be dealt to the Bills. Then uh, we talked about that Vikings pick uh, 25 just a few ago. So they have that 25th pick, their second. They'll kind of uh, probably have to do, uh, you know, uh, we're thinking with uh, with their two picks, it's probably cornerback, what offensive line, wide receiver. We would think yeah. you, you think more yeah. a little more offensive line they could use. Wouldn't be shocked to see them pick a wide receiver, especially if there was still a one of the, like the top tier ones on the board. I mean, there's just a ton here. Um, and then the Dolphins come. Is this maybe where we see the first running back off the board with Swift? Um, they could take Swift. I actually I found a prop that said Jonathan Taylor at plus two thirty would be the first back, and I figure okay. those two are. It's a coin flip, so I'd actually bet on that one. Um, it would make sense because I don't think Jordan Howard's an every-down back, so I really think they do need to address the running back and get the skill position taken care of. Yeah, this is a good spot to kind of just it, – who, who it's whoever they like, right? Go, go the yeah. guy you like because you're probably going to get the first pick off the board. So And you can you kind know. of like – like you said, whoever you like, since this draft class is so wide receiver heavy – it's probably going to vault other guys further up the list because mm-hmm. you're going to have so many options to draft a wide receiver later. Yep. Well, let's get to number 27. Um, okay, so this is the Seahawks. You know, they're they're a pretty they have some holes. Their their roster is still good. They're a good team, but they could use some help on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, their their offensive line could always use a little bit of help. Wouldn't be shocked to see them go after a wide receiver, a running back. They could fill a lot of needs here. Um, so I'm not quite sure where exactly they go. Um, they lost Ziggy and they lost Clowney, so it makes me think pass rushing okay. is what they're going to put as yeah. their top need in the first round. Um, I really think that AJ Espen is going to be gone by this point, the guy from Iowa. So I think this is where they go gross Matos, or if he's gone, Zach Braun from Wisconsin. If both those two are gone, like you said, offensive line, they could take Austin Jackson from USC in the second round. I think they're going to address the secondary um, Grant Delpit. Wilson has stated that he wants to throw the ball more and shot a micer shot a micer. I can't even pronounce his name. Sorry. The offensive coordinator. <laughs> Sean Meyer. That, yeah. yeah. He, want, he, Sean he wants Heimer. to. I can't either now. To, <laughs> I butchered it too now twice. <laughs> he wants to open up the playbook. So I could totally see them taking a, uh, a wide receiver. And also last time I was on, I talked free agents with you. I mentioned how Carson and Penny were both hurt. Yep. If they pick a running back, this tells me that one of those guys is more injured than they're then leading we, on. Yep. And the player that I would love to go to see go here is AJ Dillon, the big back from Boston College. I think this guy, I think he would thrive in this offense. They have uh, picks 27, 59, 64, 101, 133, 144, and 214. We're up to the Ravens, who they filled some holes in free agency. They, I mean, they're another team that's good. Um, they could still use a wide receiver. They could still use a linebacker, probably another guard, and on, on some help on the offensive line. So they're they're definitely not a perfect team by any means, but they're they're a team that that has some holes still to fill. They're not they're not. I don't think you know they're not Im, Im, impervious to getting beat by anyone as we saw last year once the playoffs started. I mean, for me, with the first round, I think there's three ways they can go. They lost C.J. Mosley last year to the Jets, and they never really replaced that. 
whoever the Saints don't draft, either Murray or Queen, I think the other one could go here. Um, they threw the ball to the tight end 42% of the time last year. They need a wide receiver that can go up and make a play, not just a stretcher of the field like what they have. Because right now all their wide receivers basically just run flies and can just stretch the field. They need a physical guy that can run all the routes. Possession guy route who tree. can get him a first yep. down too. Yeah. Who move the chains. Who can move yep. the chains. That's mm-hmm. what they need. And then and the, so we've really heard the think, rumors of Antonio Brown. But he's going to be suspended though. And I don't like that. I don't like that because to me, like, this is a team that they like, you know, they like each other. They seem like they have a good chemistry with Lamar there. They, they, they're they a fun team to root for. I don't, I don't like bringing him into the, with, with them. If you're going to bring him in somewhere, I think you need to bring him into like a, a spot with more of a veteran, like the spot, like a spot with Brady was always felt good because it's like, if he screws around, they're just going to get rid of him type thing. If he screwed around on a team like this, he could really mess them up. And, and I, I don't think it's a good move. Can I tell a quick Antonio Brown story? Please do. Like, so he went to Central Michigan University, okay, which is in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. That's where I grew up. And he actually his he shared a fence line with my parents' house. So he would go to the fence and he would have beers with my dad way back when during the CMU days. And my dad <laughs> cannot speak highly enough of this guy. It's kind of really funny. that's funny. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of crazy. Like. My dad would, my dad would just go in the backyard and have fifteen minute conversations with Antonio Brown when he played for CMU. Oh, that's great! That's hilarious. Um, and then um, back to the back to the um, to the Ravens. There's this kid from Fresno State, Netty. Oh my God, like Muti. He's very raw, but they need someone to replace the guard that required Yada, and I think he would fill the perfect mode with the ninety second pick. So they have uh, picks 28, 55, 60, 92, 106, 129, 134, 170, and 225. The Titans are up next with the 29th pick. They could use some help on the offensive line after losing some there. Um, They could probably use a a backup running back to help spell Henry a little bit. I don't know if this would be a place where they would reach for one. Um, And then some defensive front help. I could see there's a couple spots on the defense that they could use too, maybe a cornerback. Oh, yes. My head says they should take an offensive lineman to replace Conklin. I really think that's going to be a very glaring loss for them. But some guy posted on Twitter, and he showed the amount of virtual meetings that each team had. And the Titans had a lot of virtual meetings with defensive backs, so it makes me think they're going to take one here. Have it be Diggs, Del, Del Pitt from LSU, A.J. Terrell, because losing Logan, Logan Ryan I think is really going to hurt them. Um, or they could stretch. One guy I really like is Jeff Gladney from TS, TCU. I really think he's going to be a good pro. If we talked about wide receivers falling, if Justin Jefferson is still on the board, I think they need to take him. Uh, in the second round, they could, if they do take Justin Jefferson, they could take Ezron Cleveland from Boise State to help the offensive line or Matt Peart. Um, and you're totally right. Derrick Henry is a zero factor in the passing game, and he's off the field when they're down. And so they, they lost Deion Lewis. Yeah, they need someone. So a Zach, Zach Morris, Zach Moss, sorry, Zach from Morris, Utah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, I saw the Save by the Bell trailer. So I'm <laughs> Zach, Zach Morris, nice Zach, nice. Zach Moss, uh, <laughs> Kelly from um, UCLA, or uh, I mentioned the kid from Appalachian State, Evans before. One of those yeah. guys would would be great there. 
They would they'd be a really good fit. Yeah, that, those are good. Those are good calls. So that was the Titans at twenty nine. Uh, what do they have? The rest of the draft. They have uh, seven total picks. So they are uh, tw- one or yeah, twenty nine, sixty one, ninety three, one seventy four, two twenty four, two thirty seven, and two forty three. We're up to pick number thirty with the Packers, and um, they they did you know they were kind of quiet in free agency this year when we which we spoke about they made their big splash last year with some of the defensive players that they selected. Do they need another pass catcher here? Maybe a wide receiver, tight end, maybe a little help to the offensive line, something on the offensive side of the ball with this pick. Um, if Jones from Houston or or Caesar Ruiz, I could totally see them picking picking them. If Tree Higgins. T Higgins Street. T Higgins is still on the board. I would love to see Higgins here. I think he would be great alongside Devontae Adams. And then in the third round, they could go after Robert Hunt from Louisiana. Uh, Michael Pittman in the second round would be great. Oh, he'd be a good fit there. Yeah. Or also they need they need a tight end. Like the Green Bay offense and Aaron Rodgers historically has always been better when he has that tight end and there's really like not many stud tight ends in this draft maybe the kid from notre dame cole i can't even pronounce his last name not knit or uh randy moss's kid from lsu they need a tight end in the offense so i mean i think they're gonna go strict uh, offense probably with the first three picks packers have uh picks 30 62 94 136 175 192, 208, 209, 236, and 242. And pick number 31, it's the team that was uh, just a few minutes away from winning the Super Bowl, and they have two picks in the first round this year. We discussed them, you know, likely going for the, a wide receiver, one of the best wide receivers, and probably one of the first ones off the board with pick 13. With pick 31, do they now try to fill the the Buckner void here, or do they maybe get a little offensive line depth, cornerback depth? I think they are either going to trade, either uh, draft Black Knot, or I mean they have no picks between rounds two or four. That's what we said, yeah, maybe yeah, trade down. The trade down that just makes the most sense to me. Trading down, I I really be surprised if they use the pick. To be honest with you, I think trading down makes the most sense. And then the last pick of the first round, it is your Super Bowl champ, Kansas City Chiefs. They could use some help on the offensive line. They could use some some help in the secondary, and um, maybe uh, maybe a running back also. You know, here is where they they could see a running back that they like and probably have their their close to their pick of the litter. Um, where do you think the the Chiefs go with this first pick? There's three ways to look at this. If they feel that Jones isn't going to sign the franchise tag, I think they're going to take the best pass rusher on the board. So if they take a pass rusher, have it be Lewis, Matas, or I really don't think Espensa will be on the board, but if they take a pass rusher, it tells me they don't think Jones is going to sign the franchise tag. And then they draft. I really think they needed to draft a cornerback to replace Fuller in the second round. Or if they draft an offensive lineman here, it tells me Jones is going to be signing the franchise tag. So, I mean, I'm kind of going to use what they do here to kind of figure out what the state of the franchise is. You're totally right, though, with the running back. The fact they brought in old man McCoy told tells me they have no faith in Damian Williams mm-hmm. and will probably draft a running back. I think Swift would be back good in the system. 
Um, I'd love to see J J.K. Dobbins here or my boy Cam A Aker. Oh, that'd be a real nice fit for, you know. Uh, I mean, because kind of like when Hunt went there in the third round, one of those guys from a third-round bag I think would thrive here. So, I mean, draft O-line or draft a pass rusher, depending on the situation with Jones, and then get Dobbins in the second. Or I really think you can wait off to the third round of that pick 96 and get Akers. So the Chiefs have picks one uh, in, in the first round, uh, 32, 63, 96, 138, and 177. There are six teams this year that do not have a first-round pick. So let's discuss some of those teams. Let's just kind of, I guess we could start um, with the, the Buffalo Bills. And the Buffalo Bills have seven total picks. Their first pick is number 54. They have pick 54, 86, 128, uh, 167, 188, 207, and 239. Um, they made a big splash um, getting a, a big wide receiver with Diggs. What are some of their needs, um, and are, are they going to be able to to meet them in this draft enough? It feels like maybe some help on the defensive side of the ball, and then another offensive line too wouldn't shock me. Um, I'm hearing they want to draft the running back because I don't think Singletary is an every down back. I think Jonathan Taylor would be great here, but he's obviously going to be gone by the time they pick 54th. J.K. Dobbins would be good here. And then in the third round, or excuse me, or in the second round, go with the edge rusher, Tyrell Lewis from Alabama. Mm -hmm. And then in the third round, look at Akers or Moss at running back. Um, there's also the DB Pride from Notre Dame, which I think is good. But like I said earlier, the rumor I keep hearing is they're going to try to trade for Kamara. That would, ooh, okay. Okay. So I mean that, because Kamara's in his last year, and... I mean, I really think the Saints, I mean, did the Saints offense really miss a beat when he wasn't there? Because they have Murray. And then this is a deep a deep uh, draft for running backs with the top half. They could easily get one later on. So that's something to look out for if they, if they get Kamara, the Bills. Let's jump to a team that made some head-scratching moves in uh, free agency. That's the Houston Texans. So let's go through the picks for... Uh, for the Houston Texans, their first pick comes up at number 40. They have uh, picks 40, 90, 111, 171, and then three in the seventh round, uh, 240, 248, and 250. They, I mean, probably I, they filled a couple wide receiver holes with, with Cooks and with Cobb. I, I mean, I don't think either is going to be as good, obviously, as Hopkins. Maybe they they look for a, a receiver with their first pick, but I mean, they they it's, have it's Bill O'Brien. Do. So yeah, we don't God we don't know, know, right? What the God hell are they going to do? God only they, knows what he's going to do. I cornerback, mean, DT, wide receiver, D line, edge are probably needs for them. I mean, he could probably trade Watson to the Patriots for all we know. I mean, like no one knows what Bill O'Brien's going to do. So, um, I think they're going to have to go defense here. I or maybe O line Watson's their best player by far now, but I really don't know if is Jackson. I don't really don't think Jackson will fall to the fortieth pick, and if Jackson's not there at fortieth, I wouldn't. I would take Lewis. Uh, excuse me. I would take AJ Terrell, the DB from Clemson, because their back end is really weak. Another guy I'd look at is Marlon Davis, the um, D lineman from Auburn, and then. Bryce Hall or Cameron Datzer from Mississippi State. 
the person I really want in the draft because I feel all their wide receivers are the same, just guys that can run flies and stretch the field. I think Chase Claypool would be great here. Six foot four, high point the ball, fast, physical, can run the routes and willing to put in the work. I think if he went here, he'd be a great fit, but I really think they go defense with their first three picks, though. Up to the Indianapolis Colts. Um, their first pick is going to be number 34. They have uh, picks 34, 44, 75, 122, 160, 193, 197. Um, they got their starting quarterback, but it's not like he's a quarterback of the future. Maybe there's someone that falls that they look at and and grab him as a maybe a future quarterback. Um, they could use some help on wide receiver, probably some defensive line, maybe a tight end, maybe a DB. But where do you think they go with at least their first couple of picks? Um, unless something crazy happens and Jordan Loves falls out of the first round, I really think they need to take a wide receiver with the first round pick because T.Y. Hilton's getting older. He gets banged up a lot more. And all their other wide receivers always seem to get hurt. Denzel Mims or the kid from Colorado, Lavashkin Chenault, I think would be great here. They also need a tight end because they lost Eric Ebron, so Cole Nett from Notre Dame. And then their secondary, I think, is better than most people think, but it's still pretty young. And I think they need to keep building it. So Jeff Gadney from... TCU, I think, would be a great fit here. And then in terms of quarterback, I'm really high in Jacob Eason. I think he's going to be a good pro because of the arm strength. So I, they could take him with a fourth pick. Fourth round pick, excuse me. The Pittsburgh Steelers. Let's go to next. Um, Pittsburgh will get their first pick at number 49 overall. They have six picks in the draft. 49, 102, 124, 135. 198 and 232. Uh, what are some of the, the needs for Pittsburgh? Well, they obviously need a backup quarterback for Big Ben. Connors in his contract year and sent with his injury history, I really don't think they resign them. I think they need to get better in the trenches and the O line and D line and look at the linebacker position. I think they're going to draft a running back with that 49th pick. Kyle Edwards Helene from LSU I think would be great because he's a great pass catcher and the Steelers like to utilize the running back in the pass game or they could go for Jonathan Taylor but I really don't think Taylor's going to still be on the board there and then in the third round with pick 102 go after Hunt or Matt Pirot. I really hope they don't draft Jalen Hurts though because I really feel I feel sometimes players get unrealistic characters unrealistic comparisons to different players and I really don't think Jalen Hurts in terms of arm talent is anywhere near Lamar Jackson and I think stretching for him in the second or third round would just be a mistake to me Jalen Hurts is like Colt McCoy the reliable guy that's going to be in the league for 12 years but it's going to be a second string at best with two teams left to talk uh the Bears you know they're not in really great shape um the Bears They've got picks uh, 43 and 50, 163, 196, 200, 226, and 233. And they took a a massive step back last year. Um, They got Foles in the the mix now to to battle for their starting QB, but they could use some help at – I mean, they could use help in a lot of spots. Yeah. 
I mean, I really look at them like Graham's not the tight end that they you can trust. Graham has been relevant for how long? So that Cole Nemet, I think he would be great here because they can plug him in right away. Nagy needs to get offensive players that aren't gadget players because right now the only players I feel that are on his roster that aren't gadget players are Montgomery and Allen Robinson. Um, I actually I'm neighbors with someone on the team. I'm not going to say who, but he told me that they he thinks they're going to draft Pittman from USC to pair him with Robinson. Um, or they have two second round picks, so they could go Pittman with pick 50 and then pick 43. I am really high on this guy because I keep on repeating his name. But Jeff Gladney from TCU, I think he's going to be a real elite cornerback in the league. They could look for him to a pick 43. And then my poor uh, Rammies, they've uh, they look a lot different than they looked just about a year, year and a half ago, and um, felt like they were going to be almost like a dynasty team. But then they did they paid uh, a little too much in some in some bad spots. They pretty much overpaid everybody, <laughs> and yeah. uh, they have no first round draft picks this year. But they have picks 52, 57, 84, 104, 126, 199, 234. They got rid of Gurley. They have a couple young backs, um, but I don't know if there's anyone necessarily that they love that much. Um, they they definitely have some some holes to fill. Their offensive line was miserable last oh. year, and it's old. Whitworth is probably their best, and he's very old. Um, they could use some help on the defensive front for sure. Um, maybe they they lost you know Cooks there, so maybe they look for a wide receiver to help you know fill the void down down the line. I, think, I could see them doing a lot of different things, but they need some O-line help for sure. I think that this is the team that's going to trade up to the 49ers and get in the end, end of the first round because okay. they need talent up front. Their O-line was awful last year, and I think this is the team that trades up and takes Jones or Jackson from um, offensive linemen. And then they can look to target a running back because I really don't think Malcolm Brown or Henderson are the answers. Um, a J.K. Dobbins, I think he would do good in a, in a McVay offense. Or uh, Cam Akers, someone that will McVay can put those guys in space and really thrive. Um, if they hold off and sit back and, and only use the second-round picks, Cleveland from Boise State, the offensive lineman, the pass rusher, Terrell Lewis because they or Curtis Weaver because they lost Fowler and they need someone that can get to the quarterback, especially with Wilson, Murray, and Garoppolo in the same division that they're in. Um, and then also in the third round, they could look at Matt Hennessy, the own lineman from Kemple. Um, and this would actually be another place where I think AJ Dillon could actually thrive in. I love that kid from Boston College, the running back. And then pick six through seven, pick sorry, six or seventh round pick. That's where I look to um, replace Cooks. But real quick, let me ask you a question about the Rams. Do you think now with Cooks being gone, they're going to play two more two tight end sets? Yes, I do. It would make a lot of sense, at least for their personnel. Yeah, because um, I, was, I was trying to figure out, because I mean, I'm, as you, I'm big into fantasy football, and I was looking at the splits between cup, slot versus outside, and he rarely lined up on the outside. So, I mean, I don't is he going to be a Thielen guy? He's, he's very you know much like mean? you mentioned with Thielen, is that he's a mismatch guy. He's a guy that could, can always get open and against the right 
Against the right matchup And then I don't know if on the outside He'll get that kind of a matchup that he needs Consistently um, I They're just yeah, an interesting it, team I just don't know is. what they're going to do no, I just me don't neither. know if they're going to go 11 and, Personnel and or 12 personnel or I just don't know and they, they, and they should still be like A team that's probably like around 500 You know I don't mm-hmm. think they're going to be like miserable They'll be in a lot of games They're just in a tough division as you mentioned And they They're definitely not as talented as they were just last year And that team wasn't good enough to make the playoffs So we'll see what they do um, Change in philosophy I think is, is what's needed Is like let's start stacking some talent Instead of worrying about just like trying to get the high end High end talent that we're overpaying at every position Because that's just not going to work out for you um, Yeah. So man that was a, a nice fun dive We got through uh, every team We got through kind of like a, a first round mock to give everyone an idea of like what some of their team needs are and some of the, the players that they may select there. Any like big overall, like big picture thoughts. So not a lot of running backs early in this draft. It definitely looks like. Um, and then we have a really strong wide receiver, offensive line, like defense early on. That's why we could see a lot of, I think, as you mentioned, maybe is it like, with the Lions where it really feels like the draft starts Or maybe the Dolphins Like once we get past either like pick three or pick five It'll feel like now a lot of things can start happening Oh yeah, I think with the, Ly- with the Lions, Dolphins, Chargers, those three And just to see the dominoes, the dominoes fall And with teams not being able to do their medical I mean Tua could drop a lot Tua could free fall just right, because and, teams or, are so anal about doing their own own medical sure. reports. Or like if you're, but if you're like the Dolphins, or and you're looking around and you're going, you know what, we got three first round picks and we got a ton of first round picks. Is it where, do we just take a swing here? You know, like or like you said, if you're one of these teams that, you know, you feel like you've got a guy like a stopgap for a year. You know, even like the Chargers. Okay, hey, we've got Tyrod Taylor here. Maybe we don't even worry about it. For an entire year or even the Jags You know they're like hey we've got Minshew Here like maybe we don't worry about it If two is the guy we're kind of gonna get Value on him down at pick number nine Man this is I'm The more I dove into this to, to, to Start prepping for the draft It's a very intriguing draft and then you know Add the factors in that like you mentioned Where they couldn't some of these couldn't couldn't Get like up to date recent physicals None of the in, like in person interaction A lot of this stuff had to be done on Zoom and on Skype it definitely adds a different Dynamic to this draft oh I Think it's going to be great and it's going to be The most watched draft ever because There's nothing else going on this is I know I maybe do one or Two bets for the draft I have Like four going right now so I'm very invested. This is the most research I've done in a mock draft in a while, just because there's nothing else going on. And I really think, like you said before, I think there's going to be a rush of offensive linemen, and then it'll go defense, and then to see what wide receivers go where after Judy, Lamb, and Ruggs are off the board. Those Erica, are the things that interest me. Let everybody know, where can we follow you on uh, on social media? Um, I'm at etoff. 2-1 Sports on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I actually just got a TikTok, too, and I think what I'm going to do during the draft is I'll give a little one-minute breakdown in each uh, Ooh, nice each draft draft pick afterwards. Awesome. Sounds good, and we'll have you back on uh, um, after the draft so we can kind of talk about uh, what everything happened and how everybody looks to be set up uh, moving forward. All right. Sounds good, man. Looking forward. Thanks for having me on.
Thanks a lot, Eric. Let's uh, take a quick break here. Let's hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back on that's what G said. Don't go anywhere. One of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full service realtor. And I am here over in Glendora at Coldwell Banker with Cindy Carava. Cindy, how was 2019 for you? Tell us uh, a little bit about what uh, what kind of stuff you were working on. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. Uh, 2019 was just really great. Uh, I had a great year uh, selling homes all the way from Altadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, out to Upland and Ontario just recently. Um, the market has, has been uh, really good. Um, we're looking forward to 2020 with an increase in home prices about 5.8% this year, opposed to last year where it was a little softer. We saw uh, more like homes averaging about 3.5% in increase in value. Um, it's also looking great for buyers. Uh, the interest rates right now are going to be staying under 4%. So if you've been on the fence about thinking about buying a home, Home, now is the time to do so with interest rates still staying low. And you offer more services than just the buying, selling, and leasing homes. Tell us about some of the other services that you offer and what a full service realtor really is. So you're right, Gino. Besides me being uh, a full service realtor of uh, finding properties for my clients to buy or selling their homes or finding rentals for them, um, I also have a plethora of resources like uh, handyman, contractors, electricians, plumbers. Uh, I even, if like I said, if you're thinking about getting a home loan, I actually work with two great lenders that I can recommend to anybody. And you're all over the internet, social media, websites. Let us know some of the places where we can find you. I know I've seen some reviews on Yelp and on Zillow. They, everyone always has positive things to say. Everybody hears me raving about you all the time. But where can uh, everyone else find out information about you or contact? Thank you, Gino. Yeah, I am on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and uh, you can contact me on my website, which is www.cindycarava.com or my email, which is cindyc.realtor at gmail.com, or feel free to call or text me on my cell phone, which is 626-394-6400. Cindy is awesome. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. I promise you, you will enjoy every minute you interact with her. So thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, Appreciate all of your support from That's What She Said podcast. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day, everyone. And a big thank you to Eric. Uh, you heard where you can find him and follow along on social media. Uh, social media, really sharp guy, really good better. Um, loves to play fantasy sports, daily fantasy stuff, and you could tell he really has his pulse on the NFL in particular. Did a great job uh, getting prepped and, and uh, set to to have the conversation with us. So a big thank you to Eric. Up next, let's get to Dave the Dream Weaver. We're gonna talk some low salamitos for Friday night and for Saturday night. Enjoy, get your past performances out so you could follow along with the Low Sal Talk. So the only racetrack that we still have rolling right now in California with Golden Gate shutting down, with Santa Anita shutting down, is Los Salamitos. And Los Salamitos last weekend, over the last couple weekends now, with there, there being no other... Racing some of these horses in particular Some of the lower level like claiming horses Or or horses who don't want to go that far They need somewhere to run And they're going to Los Salamitos When we talk Los Salamitos we have to bring in Ice Cold Dave Weaver What's going on Weave how you doing Snossage Uh hanging in there 
yeah, just like everybody, you know, stuck at home and just trying to get through this with the help of being able to bet on some ponies every day and night. At least we got that still, you know, and they've been doing a good like at Los Al and and some of the tracks that have been open. They've done a really good job of being safe, um, taking all the necessary precautions uh, um, to 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 stay going. And there, there's not many tracks still rolling out there. But I mean, the ones that are. They are benefiting, Dave. I mean, you, you look at some of the like early weeks, you know, now like Fawner and Will Rogers on Mondays and Tuesdays are just getting their handle is through the roof. Like Oaklawn cards now and Gulfstream cards that, you know, this was generally like a downtime of the year for Gulfstream. Their cards are just massive now. So, you know, while a lot of these tracks have had to close down, the ones that are open, they're reaping the benefits right now. Well, I've even bet some Swedish harness racing, so it's come to that, and uh, and that's the true story. I, I know Jorn Boop is the leading driver in Sweden. He's like the Yannick Zingra of uh, Sweden harness racing. But getting back to Los Al, number one on the safety side, if, you, if you're watching in the paddock, instead of them being next to each other in stalls, they're putting an empty space. So they'll have the one horse, then they're going to have a, a, a blank spot, and then they're going to have the two. So instead of having, you know, 10 horses right next to each other, they're all spaced out. Um, the other thing you're going to see, like, blue sanitation stations all over the place where they can wash their hands as soon as they feel that they need to or if they came in contact with something where they want to wash their hands immediately, get sanitized. You see all the jockeys wearing face masks as they go to the gate. So everybody's doing what they can to make this continue to to happen at Los Al. And what happened, instead of having seven races, Gino, there are 10 races Saturday, 10 races Sunday, 10 horse fields, nine horse fields. I think the lowest that you're going to see now is probably seven here and there, mostly eight. So it's crazy. And with bigger field sizes comes bigger pools. So we set the all-time record when I say we, I mean us as horse players that like to play Los Al, $335,000 in the early pick four. I mean, does that number just not even sound right? It doesn't. No, because it was always you know, the trumpets when we get to 100000 you know, that was always uh, the way it is when you're covering LaSalle and that would all that would be good pools a lot of the nights, you know, getting to the six figures, that was good. And then up into the one and then even even right before the, the it was set, wasn't it just like didn't it jump from like two seventy eight all the way up to that number? Yeah. Didn't so it, like, it was, just... was two thirty five or two forty. <laughs> then it went to two seventy one the week before okay. Yeah, okay. On, a, on a Saturday. <laughs> and then three thirty five. Oh, wow. So and that's you know, the first pool when it was two seventy one was like six it was like six and seven horse fields. Then last week it was all eight. So there was one scratch. So it was eight, 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 seven, and and they got three thirty-five. So what are you gonna do on Friday night with a field of ten, a field of nine, a field of eight, and another field of nine? Three hundred and fifty thousand. And then Friday's usually the slow night. Then on Saturday with full fields, maybe just maybe quadruple trumpets four hundred thousand. I think it's possible. It is. I mean we so we were looking at Friday Friday's card and we jump into it and actually before we even get into the specifics I do want to say we're lucky that we're living in this era of technology because honestly like at the very beginning of when TVG started this wouldn't even be possible right now doing what you guys are doing being able to record from home um and and have it actually be like some semblance of an actual broadcast You know what I mean like it, it's there you're still Getting a lot of the same kind of stuff Unfortunately we're not live at track and being Able to talk you know and interact with a lot of the people At the track but as far as Being able to provide analysis being Able to still give the folks out there kind of Something to watch something to listen to a way to Watch the races we we're Lucky that it's now and not 20 15 20 years ago 
Yeah, maybe maybe twenty years ago it would have just been on the line voice of yeah, Dave exactly. Weaver just talking no. about the races. But now yeah. I actually have a camera in my room with a light, with a monitor, with you know top notch stuff, uh, microphones, and and behind me I've hooked up my Apple TV. I'll tell you my tricks. I've like not everybody has figured out what I'm doing. Like Simon's got a nice painting behind him. Mike goes out and sits on his patio with some palm trees behind him. That's all fine and dandy. But behind me, I have mirrored my TV to my iPad through the Apple TV where I can show a backtrack or I can make a bet in my account or I can put up a graphic that says Trackside Live and make it look like I'm in the studio. So I've kind of taken pride in um, being able to do as much as I can. Even though I'm not in the studio, I'm trying to do as much as I can to make it an enjoyable show. And it's been nice that, like you said, 20 years ago, that never would have happened. No. So, and, and what's fun about this too is that like everybody's setup. It's just a little unique, a little different. It kind of gives you a, like a little like look into their home and their family right. and everything, which is cool because you've done a great job. Like the biggest star in horse racing over the last three weeks is Sophie. Sophie, she's <laughs> she's just incredible. I mean, she not only do people love just kind of seeing the family interaction and, and seeing what what I like is that she is obviously loving this too. Like this is not like you're not putting her up to this in any way, shape, or form. Like she's into this. She knows what she she knows what she's doing now. She's having fun with it. You could tell she's like emotionally invested with her wins and her losses and stuff. Like th- it's it's just a blast. Like it's been able to, you've been able to uh, to take people's minds off it and do a really good job. And and you know what, what we're always here to do is is make some money. And uh, I think we'll have a, a visit from uh, from that star uh, a little later before we finish our conversation. But um, I mean. We talk Friday like you look at Friday And so let's say if you're not If you're like a more of a thoroughbred player You don't play the quarter horses a whole ton And so you're usually like um, You know what maybe I play a couple races at Los Sal These are the cards that you Stop right now and go take a look Because like you know you look fri- uh, Friday night The first race it's a four and a half furlong race We have a field of ten The second race it's a four and a half furlong race We have a field of nine The third race it's an 870 race We have a field of eight The fourth race it's a four and a half furlong race We have another big field in there with a field of nine And you even go to race number five Which is an 870 race And it's an allowance race And now you're seeing these allowance races That are being written now in these 870 races Which are basically like majority of horses that last raced either at Santa Anita or maybe at Golden Gate, some of them, or horses that are coming off layoffs. Like these are horses who are just begging for a place to run. And Jeff Mullins actually had a horse that won last weekend that was a stake source from New Mexico that was racing at Sunland Park in Zia and looked very good winning. Mullins is sending horses over. Andrew Lerner is sending horses. Jonathan Wong will have a horse racing this week. Jack Caraba has some horses entered. So it's not your your typical nighttime trainers that you're used to seeing. Steve Knapp is sending a horse over. And they have to, really. I mean, you either keep the horses in the barn and, and just training until you you don't know when racing is going to resume at Santa Anita or you've come on over here. It's only a four and a half furlong race, right? So you could almost treat it like it's sort of a workout. You're running yeah. a little bit harder, obviously, but you're getting paid to do it instead of just working out in the morning. So it makes sense to run in these races. And it's smart by low sell to give them the opportunities with these allowance races are carding too. Cause I'm sure some of these connectioners, some of these trainers that probably have horses that could be in the claiming ranks are probably looking going, ah, you know what? Maybe I don't want to lose my horse if we go over there. So just like you mentioned, it gives them a, a perfect spot where they go, okay, let's at least give it a try. 
it's at it's it's at the very least like equivalent to a work. If they don't like it, if it's a little too quick for them, if whatever it is, then we don't do it again. But if if not, we can at least pick up a uh, pick up a check. Yeah, and Saturday there are even better races. Oh, There's actually wow. a stakes yeah. race on Saturday. The the tenth and final race is at eight hundred seventy yard stakes for twenty thousand. And there are a lot of allowance races where they've written the conditions to to fit a lot more horses coming in from Santa Anita and they've bumped the purses too. The typical allowance race would probably be twelve thousand dollars. Now they're writing them fifteen thousand as high as eighteen thousand. Yeah, that stakes is a twenty thousand dollar race. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, like the third race on Saturday. It's an 870 race. Morgan S. The one is like an allowance horse who just got beat for 32 against 32 claimers last time out. And more honor is coming out of like higher level claiming races. You look at um, Castle Gate, who just like, crushed a group of 25 non-two claimers. Like Tap the Wire is coming out of first level allowance races last year. Like that's a str- that's a strong group. And the same thing in the fourth race. It, Parade Blue was you know like. Very competitive at good levels at Indy and uh, and, and Turfway recently. Um, I, I mean, it, it's this is like a different side of LaSalle than we may have ever seen. And you're probably going to have to get used to it. I can only imagine as the weeks go on where we haven't resumed racing at Santa Anita. Hopefully we do. I hope we start tomorrow. Um, but if we don't, you would think that more trainers are going to want to run horses and the conditions mm-hmm. at LaSalle are going to be able to accommodate that. So let's uh, let's talk and, and let's give out a horse for for each uh, for each day. Uh, let's give out a play for Friday. Let's give out a play for Saturday. So I, again, you're, if you're a thoroughbred handicapper, I mean, you focus on that early part of the Friday card, and and you're going to be fine when you're doing your research and you're handicapping those first five races because it's all the same stuff that you look at. It's all the same things that you handicap. You don't have to get discouraged by you know maybe a couple quarter horse races in the mix if that's not your style. This is perfectly fitting for you. So what? Where do you think is a horse to stand out and maybe to key in on uh, in an early pick four or maybe if it's the fifth of the late pick four? Let's talk the early pick four real quick because there's going to be a favorite in race number one. A 10-horse field, the favorite's drawn the rail, needs the lead or at least needs to be close to it and isn't going to get it. This is going to be a shuffle fest for the favorite. Bob again, chuck him out. Okay, so first of all, we're going to beat the favorite to start. I'm not exactly sure how deep we need to go, but we're going to be anti-one in the first leg of the pick four. As giving a play, is anti a favorite like this? Because this is a race where we go against, I think, horses that I would at least want to throw in if we're if we're trying to beat the favorite, the three and the eight both look a little interesting at prices. Like they could show a little improvement in here. And and, and maybe this is a race where you go a little deeper. I mean, I think I'm going to be two by two by two after that. So even if you hit the all button or all but one button, throwing him out, it would be $8 a horse. So it'd get a little bit expensive if you went that way, but we can consider that race. Number two, I think it's two horse race between the six horse, a quite a starlet class dropper for Gary Studi coming in from Santa Anita, a 35 flat work. These horses don't even run three furlongs and 35 flat in the race, Gino. This is going to be, the if she runs to the workout, she's going to win the race, and she'll probably run even better than that. So I like her, and I, I'm going to use the nine-horse Noble Girl. I know she's over 12 lifetime, but I think she is going to fit here and, and have a little bit of a late kick down the line. I love Juan Sanchez, so I almost always use Juan Sanchez around the turn if he's on a decent horse, and this is a decent horse. So 6-9 in race number two. Race number three, two horses. I can only see the six Royal Aspirations or the seven Cause and Effect. The six to seven to five but i'll double up with the four to one shot cause and effect so two two deep in the second two deep in the third race number four the three zinzan and the eight uh 
Santilla's dreaming. So they're three to one and four. To one. I'm going to try to beat the favorite. The favorite in that race is Haas Cartwright. We've seen uh, plenty of him here at Los Al. He hasn't really been able to break through, so he's continuing to drop in class. I don't think the class, class drop makes enough of a difference. So beating a favorite in the first leg and beating a favorite in the fourth leg, maybe we can get it to pay 500 if we get the right horses in between. Sure, that's great. That's an awesome quick little navigation through that early pick four on Friday. Okay, so let's move to Saturday. And as you mentioned, Saturday, huge card, ends with the stakes race, a ton of the thoroughbred influence there at Los Alamitos. So uh, where, are we, where are we looking on Saturday? We're going to go to race number five as, uh, as my best bet. And who knows, we might uh, end up with Sophie having the same horse as her cinch. I let her do her thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I she's got to be influenced by pops. I mean, yeah, you, you obviously are, taught her what she knows, you know. Uh, I help her, but sometimes she's like, I wanted the five. And I said, oh, sorry. Okay, next time I will let you pick. And then the next time she picked and she won. So now I've learned to back off and just let her do her thing. But I'm going to recommend that the seven horse, Speedy Gigi, in that race could be the real deal. A seven-length winner, first time out of Turf Paradise, New Year's Day. Um, they shut things down uh, at Turf Paradise the beginning of March. So really there was nowhere for this one to go. A homebred for Melissa Ford who was racing this one at Turf Paradise, and now she shows up here in this allowance spot in the new barn of Andrew Lerner. Seven-length winner first time out. She's got Rocky Bar pedigree on the bottom side, which is like a four-furlong sire through yep. and through, maybe five furlongs. You want all speed here. I think she's going to open up a huge lead on this field. I'm not saying she's a stakes horse, but she's basically facing mostly horses that have been claiming horses throughout their career. And she's better than that. At Speedy Gigi in race number five at Los Alamitos. Well, well you mentioned you, you mentioned Sophie. How, so she, what, how is she loving this uh, this rise to stardom? And it, it, if possible, can we get a word with her? So here's the deal. I'm going to make her do it because I'm her dad. But I said, <laughs> Sophie, c- come on, come on this phone call. Not that this is a phone call. And she said, No, I only want to be on TV. Okay, well, a that's six-year-old. That's, she's already a diva already. So she's, I'm going to teach her. That's not how it works, Sophie. You don't just only be on TV. <laughs> You're going to be on. That's what G said. Podcast. So yes, I'm going to go get her. She's probably playing. Um, she got this new thing where we, even we used to have this when we were kids. It's like a marble, um, a marble run where you build up oh, yeah. all the towers, and you wouldn't even think that kids in 2020 would like enjoy that. Madness. She loves it. She's building her marble. So. She's probably doing that right now. I'm gonna go out and get okay, her. We can get a word for her. If bring she's her being back. Too in. much of a diva, you know. I don't. I don't want oh. you to get you know into a fight or anything. But let's take a let's take a moment and see if we can get her on the line. Stand by. Okay. This isn't going to be our microphone. Okay. Probably have to just hold this up to your ear the whole time, okay? Okay. So you can hear. Okay, you can sit there. Yeah, because you're talking right there, okay? Okay, put it in your ear and hold it, and then see if we can hear Gino. All right, we're back. Hi, Sophie. How you doing? Good. Well, I I had to get you on to talk for a minute because I am a huge fan of yours. I'm a I'm your one of your dad's buddies, but. Um, I think you're already better than your dad, and you've been doing this a lot less. So uh, are you having fun being on TV? Yeah. 
And and um, what uh, okay, give me what are some of the things that you like about horse racing? Uh, I like when the horses win. There we go. Right, right, and that's um, that's what we're gonna see. So, you are you are we gonna get to see you again this weekend on TVG giving out some of your Sophie cinches? Yeah. Okay, well, we look forward to that. I know it's a little bit early, so your dad gave us some plays. I won't really force you to give us a play unless you have one right now. So don't worry about that. We just wanted to say hello to you and check in because I want you to know you're you're a big star out there right now. People are all talking about you. And I think your last couple of videos had like 15,000 people watching. So um, keep up the good work, Sophie, and uh, make sure that, to give your dad a hard time if he's not letting you pick him because you're better than him. Yeah. That is a lot <laughs> Sophie, you're awesome We're going to see you this weekend on TVG You have a great, great night Okay That is the biggest star in racing right now Sophie Weaver Dave, the D-Gen, thank you I'll, uh, I'll send Sophie's fee over uh, uh, to you a little bit later on, uh, on Venmo we got to get her to elaborate a little bit more. Well, no, it's the first few times are, are fine. I mean, it's it's a little different when when Pops is right there behind and she's on TV. She kind of knows what she's going to say. It's early and yeah. it's early in the week. We just wanted to check in and say hello because uh, I, I love what you guys are doing, man. Uh, it, it's it's fun to watch and she definitely enjoys it and, and uh, we all get a kick out of it. So Weaver, my man, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on and uh, and talking low south with us. Give us so you'll be on um, for both both nights this weekend. I'm going to be on every night for the quarters, so I'll come on a little bit early, do a little bit of Remington action at 4 o'clock Pacific, and lead you right into the early pick four and finish up right around 7. So, yeah, all three days. And where can we follow you online, social medias? You can catch me on Twitter at IceCold. Exacta. Pretty easy to remember. There you go. And uh, make all your wagers at TVG and uh, make sure to tune into TVG for uh, all the broadcasts there. They're doing a great job. Um, Holding down the fort right now Thanks a lot buddy, I'll, I'll talk to you over the weekend We'll play some races Alright man, thanks Okay, have a good one That is Dave Weaver and Sophie Weaver Let's take a quick break here on That's What G Said Let's hear from one of our sponsors Don't go anywhere Great talking with uh, good buddy Dave Weaver And nice to check in with Sophie uh, We're going to have to follow along and see Who she plays each and every night With those Sophie's cinches Let's uh, move on over to some other Horse racing. Let's talk some Gulfstream Park for Friday. Let's talk about April the 17th. Get your past performances out. In race number one, Maiden 16,000s in here. Like the eight, Silver Palms quite a bit. She just kind of had an unprepared start. She was able to recover. She sat pretty close, but she got hooked three wide and was losing ground all the way around the track. Makes a three wide bid up at the top of the lane, but she just couldn't get by Cats uh, J and J. And she was second in the stretch and was still trying late before she just got a little bit tired and I think this is a great great spots for her. She exits some really live races if you notice she's going to take the blinkers off and maybe that can help her just relax a little bit more in here the January 8th race, the winner of that race won a 50 claimer next out the 4th place finisher won a maiden 16 next out then a 20,000 claimer after that and and then you go back to um the November 22nd race with Queen of God Queen of God won next out She's now a multiple stakes winner She won the Bourbon at Oaks Silver Palm is coming out of some good races And I think major Major player in here So I have the 8 on top and a win wager I'll put the 8 on top of the 10 Harmonic Thunder Who I think is the one to beat and you should use in all exotics Those are my top tier After those two, it's a 11 3, 
seven, six. For me, the eight Silver Palms, the ten Harmonic Thunder, they're on top. And then we could use some others uh, depending on how we want to play the early pick five or any other exotics. Second race, um, baby race, maiden specials, two-year-olds. I'm going to lean to the eight First Navy Admiral for Ralph Nix, drawn to the outside. The dam was a five-time winner. You have a nice work most recently. The dam was a $250,000 multiple stakes winner, a $250,000 earning multiple stakes winner. Eight, um, eight of the nine fulls that she produced have won. Seven of them are multiple winners, including... Awesome Feather, who was 10 for 11 and a multiple grade one winner who won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies. So we know there's some precocity in here. We have a nice work, we have a nice pedigree, and we have a barn that wins well with first time starters. I think the recipe adds up. Golden Pal, obviously, is the Wesley Ward one. This is the first full for Lady Shipman, who was 13 for 21 and earned over $900,000, including uh, the runner up in the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint. He obviously fits in here. And then uh, I guess the five would be the other one, just right, Mike. The dam was unraced. The lone sib was one for three. But for me, I think it would be the two, uh, the the seven and the eight would be the two that I would I would lean more towards in here. You can throw the five in if you're looking for another one with that the, mo- the quick recent work over at Gulfstream. Yeah, but the eight, First Navy Admiral, will be the top selection there. In the third, um, I'm going to go to the three, Love Nest. I just think that he's going to have the opportunity to sit third or fourth and get the jump on the millionaire in here who's going to take a lot of money for a horse who doesn't have a whole lot of early speed and has to come from out of it. The one big boy, Bruno, adding the blinks on the class drop, putting two starts together. I wouldn't be shocked to see him show a little more speed from the rail. Um, and then the eight it would be the other one. So three one eight for me with the three, Love Nest on top. And for race number four, I absolutely love Garner State Park. I think he des- she deserves to be a fi- the, the favorite in here. I wouldn't be shocked if she ends up getting a, a ton of play. She was a step slow in her debut. She was last early. She moved up the inside. She got through a really tight spot to settle in seventh and eighth. She was tucked inside. She was eight off. She was traveling really, really well, but she was right up onto the heels of a rival. Nowhere to go. Had to angle around five wide at the top of the lane and just missed second. I'm going to put her on top. I'm going to have the five fast fraction if you're looking for another one. This is the single for me in the early pick five sequence. In race number five, um, I'm going to look at, I guess it'll be kind of Captain Obvious in here. Um, The nine will be my top selection, though, Lake Parima, who's going to put two starts together, who's going to drop in class, and who should be able to sit a little bit more in here. The two Philly special makes sense on the drop in class. Second off, the eight polished copper, I think could offer you a little bit of value here coming out of a productive race. and then the four, uh, Marie's Melody, who who just makes a lot of sense, was just just missed at the level last time out. She's not run a bad race, but when you have a filly like this who's who's starting to kind of settle for minor awards, you wonder. The thing with her, though, she hasn't been your beaten favorite, so she's in races where she's probably not supposed to win. Um, this is a good spot for her, though. Nine, two, eight, four there in race number five. So, uh... We get to the sixth race. Not, not a race where I'm against Sniper Shot. I wouldn't completely talk you off using him, but I like Mijos a little bit. He took back to last. He was about six, seven lengths off, and he he moved from the back of the pack. He was like six deep, widest of all. He really closed well, and the seven furlong distance for him should be absolutely perfect. I think it's going to hit him right between the eyes. So Mijos, I'm expecting some improvement here with Mijos in race number Six going to be one of our better plays of the day, and 
you know, in race number seven, um, I, I guess I would look to the six super shenanigan. I just don't have really any strong opinion. So for me, this is like six, two, eleven. Um, but I'm not gonna. I, I won't even bother, you know, spending time on the race if I I don't love it. And I, I don't really have anything to lead you to. In the eighth race, though, I feel a little differently about the eight Miss Mazel, who this is a great spot for her. She was down on the inside. She was like seven lengths off, and she closed really, really well to finish fourth. She just missed third that day. I just think she got a little bit outrun, um, and it's better than it looks on paper. So the eight, Miss Maisel, let's use in all of our exotics, and let's make a win wager on this one. Eight, three, uh, you know, after the, the eight, I would use the two, three, four, and five in the exotics, like the a lot of the logical, obvious horses in here. But don't forget about Miss Maisel if you're playing any kind of late... Uh, late exotics here, like late pick five, late pick four, uh, anything like that. In race number nine, another one where it's just not a really strong opinion in here. Um, I'm probably going to be using a lot of the, the very logical horses. The four, I have Vinnie Van Gogh on top. The three, Noontime Gem. Uh, the six, Fortin Hill. To me, that's the top tier. You want to go a little deeper, I have the eight, kind of a question mark on the dirt for the first time. Shockamont, plenty talented, but not sure if, if this is what he wants and then why are you awesome at you know a big price to include in some of your exotics there? And then to close things out, um, in the, the 10th race, I like the three Cowtown. I wouldn't be shocked if he ends up getting bet even more. He was your beaten favorite against Maiden Specials last time out. He's going to try the grass for the first time. He's actually been training on the grass. Uh, they tried to get on the grass earlier. And look at who he's he's been behind in some of his races. Modernist, even Portos. You see Enforceable earlier on in his career. So he's faced good company. Um, I think this is his race to lose um, So I'll have the the three Cowtown on top um, After that, I mean the ele- like Alpha Dog makes sense, Maverick Kitten Would be another one, what's wrong with Eagle's Palace, who's uh, who's on the Drop, um, the 12 Magic Streets, obviously very logical uh, The 7 Chocolate Bar The 5 Bourbon Wisdom So I'll probably play two different tickets, one where I Single the three, and then I'll play another ticket Where I can go a little bit deeper and include more in the exotic. So a quick run through at Gulfstream Park. Uh, race number one, the eight Silver Palms. Race number two, the eight First Navy Admiral. The three, uh, the third race, the three Love Nest. The fourth, the seven Garner State Park. Fifth race, the nine Lake Parima. Six, the eight Mihos. Eight, the number eight Miss Maisel. And the tenth race, the number three Cowtown. Those will be the the horses I try to play some exotics around. And so you know, if you want to play an early pick five, maybe it can be something uh, along these lines. 3, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11 with 7, 8, with 1, 3, 8, with the 7 singled with the 2, 4, 8, 9. You can come back and play something uh, like this, another one uh, in the early pick 5, 8, 10 with 5, 7, 8, with 1, 3, 8, with 5, 7, with 2, 4, 8, 9. And then maybe uh, in some of the late exotics, if you're playing a late uh, pick 5, I would I would approach something like this 6th uh, race, 6, 8, with 2, 6, 11, with 2, 3, 4, 5, 8, with 3, 4, 6, 8, 10, and then single the 3. And then in the seventh race, maybe we play a pick four. Where we come back and we just press all in in the uh, the seventh race, and then we can we can single Miss Maisel, and then we can go deep. You know, with three, four, six, eight, ten, with three, five, seven, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You can always shorten up in that last race if you need, because you know I like the three Cowtown, but I like to play two different tickets a lot of times where I single one, and then maybe uh, play another where I have a little bit of coverage in that same race where I single a horse. It just gives you two different approaches there. So. Let's get you over to Oaklawn for uh, April the 17th for Friday. Let's talk a little Oaklawn. Just a couple plays throughout the card uh, on Oaklawn. In, in race number one, let's go to the two Egomaniac. I'm talking about myself here. 
uh, broke well, was right up with the leaders, and was just a couple lengths off, and then got in a tight spot, and so tracked back a little bit, moved into contention, was in between horses, but was, was right into traffic. It was a weird trip, and it was, a, it was a little bit better than it looks on paper, and now you add the blinkers here. I'm going to give Eagle Maniac uh, a big shot in race number one. Uh, let's make a win wager on the deuce. Ego Maniac. In race number three, we're going to go to the 12 Descent. Make sure to include him in some of your I- exotics here. Um, Descent, in his last start, was on uh, March the 8th. He broke out, but he was he broke well. Uh, but everyone else showed speed that day, so then he gets hooked really, really wide. He was always wide all the way around the, the racetrack. Could he get the same kind of a really wide trip in here? Sure, but the difference is... He's taking a massive drop in class. He should just be better. And, you know, look at some of the races he comes out of. That ready-to-roll race was a tough one. The Wells Bayou race was a good one also. I mean, he... Normally, I don't like horses that are, you know, $300,000 purchases and they're showing up in a spot like this. But I don't think he he has to run a whole lot better than he's been running um, to be very competitive here. And I don't think he's going to be like a... Like a really short price or anything Now keep an eye on his price If he gets hammered at the windows And then maybe don't play But um, this barn has started to heat up a little bit And he fits uh, He fits well in here Let's go to race number 6 With uh, the number 10 uh, We're going to go to Smart Call On January the 18th At Fairgrounds uh, There have been two next out winners out of that race Both have come back to win Maiden Special Weights he comes out of a, a really live race, takes a drop in class with uh, Joel jumping aboard. I think Smart Call uh, is a horse to make sure to include in some of your exotics and uh, put a few bucks on to win. And then in race number eight, if if he's anywhere like around half of, uh, if he's anywhere around like five, six to one, um, I think Touching Rainbows, who's grade one placed, it, it, look at his last two starts. He was a winner two, two back. He drew the rail. And then last time out, it's a good start from the inside, but a couple others went for the lead. He got stuck inside behind. He's waiting on the heels. He gets shuffled back he, a couple lengths. He takes a run at the winner, but awesome anyone had already snuck away. He gets up for second early in the stretch before he tires, and he ends up finishing third. This is a nice horse. When On his best days, he's capable of really, really big performances. So let's make sure to use the uh, the number four. Touching rainbows in all your exotics there at Oaklawn Park. So uh, the first race, the two Ego Maniac. The third race, the twelve Descent. The sixth race, the ten Smart Call. And the eighth race, the number four Touching Rainbows. Final bit of horse racing will be uh, Oaklawn for Saturday. Let's get to Saturday for Oaklawn Park, and we're gonna go to the seventh race. We're gonna play the late pick five and uh, talk a little bit about a couple of the stakes here. So in race number seven. The, take a look at the three locally owned Who's going to stretch out now Who's going to go second off and Look at the races the only time he went long He was behind War of Will and Chase the Ghost it, At the beginning of his career he, come, he came out of really productive races And he never really got an opportunity To continue to go long I think this is a good spot For him to stretch back out Let's use the three locally owned In all exotics Make a win wager on him If he's like you know Eight to one or so, even about half of a of his price. The five Desmond, I do think fits in here because he he kind of had a slow start and he wanted to go. They had to take a hold. I think the blinkers will help him a little bit focus more. So Desmond isn't a favorite that I'm necessarily you know 
taking swings against the one wild pop it if you want to go a little deeper but I'm fine with just three five uh, and maybe even a one three five on if you're playing that late pick five in the eighth race the two I mean the two stakes races the stakes races at Oakland have been showing up so deep lately um, huge massive fields and that's the case again in the count fleet and let's start with the three hog Creek hustle they're Looks like there's a ton of speed in here, right? You would imagine in a big field like this going six furlongs, you're going to have Bobby's Wicked One, who's really fast. Mr. Jägermeister's not slow. Hidden Scroll is very fast. Um, Right there, boom, three quick ones. Then you add Share the Upside to the mix also. They're going to be cooking up front. This race has every right to set up very well for a horse like Hog Creek Hustle, who wants to take back and make the one late run. And, you know... You can make excuses for some of his recent races, right? Like, look at some of the races he's coming out of. He was behind Mr. Freeze when Mr. Freeze was awesome, and he actually was was fine that day, finishing third. He was just well beaten. Two back, he's in a small field behind Bobby's Wicked One, who's able to just cruise, and he has to sit a lot closer than he he, he wants to. Now he's gonna go third start of the year, third start off the bench. He could be ready to move forward. He doesn't really have to move forward a whole heck of a lot. Um, to win this race Hog Creek Hustle Hoping that he takes back and comes flying late The Nine Whitmore he He's going to be tough For like all the same reasons that I, I talked about Hog Creek Hustle And Whitmore's a little more tactical He loves it at Oaklawn He should get the trip There should, I mean If he doesn't get into trouble here like There should be no excuses for him in a spot like this Like he did, He's Best suited to win this race The Four Bobby's Wicked one I think if there's anyone that has an opportunity To take to just outrun everyone It's him And so he might be of the of all the speeds The quickest one So we'll use him uh, the, the seven hidden scroll Obviously you know like how good is he On his best days he's capable of monster efforts But is he the kind of horse who can't really Overcome trouble or he has to Just be cruising on the lead He might not get that kind of a trip in here And and then Flagstaff I mean what's wrong with him Greatest stakes winner last time out He has that perfect style where he can sit just off And kind of place himself in, um, You know just a length or two off the pace But he might be outrun a little bit in here I mean, there there are some quick ones. One race to look at. I like the three Hog Creek Hustle. Um, nine four seven two is how I've uh, the eighth race approached. Let's get to race number nine. And I just of the sequence, I didn't love this race a whole heck of a lot. Um, I do think the four is worth uh, giving another opportunity to. Um, so include um, Headland, uh, the six break even. Got the race that she needed out of uh, out of the way, and she should be a lot better this time out. And then uh, the eight Heaven's Whisper, who's just become a, a very nice mare. Um, she's sharp right now, and she just loves to win races. The five Meadow Dance, if you're looking for another in here. So I was four, six, eight, five in that ninth race. In the tenth, the Apple Blossom, really good group here um, lining up. And I'm going to go to the five, Point of Honor She got the nice prep out of the way last time out It was a slow start, she was last on the inside Didn't have a lot of room By the time she was able to get around um, The horse had kind of gotten a few lengths on her And she's she needs more than seven furlongs That's not a distance She's not, doesn't really have that kind of a Massive turn of foot She's more of a grinder that'll kind of wear you down type So 
uh, give me Point of Honor in here, a race that, again, another one of these big fields that you imagined to have a lot of speed in. Serengeti Empress was able to steal the race last time out. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that Ah Emma spilled the jock and wasn't able to uh, to use any of, of her speed to at least press. And then you look at this field, and you got to imagine there's going to be a little more speed signed on, possibly from Come Dancing. You could um, also be getting speed from Horologist. You could get some speed from Go Google yourself. But I think the major pace threat is going to be right next door to Serengeti Empress, and that's Cookie Dough. Um, even CC way out wide. But Cookie Dough is really, really fast. So breaking right next to Serengeti Empress, I think that's going to definitely take a little zip out of that one. I'm okay with playing against Serengeti Empress, and we're going to expect Point of Honor to get back to that really nice form that she had in uh, 2019. Let's use the five on top. I'm going to play a pick five where I actually single point of honor. The others that I'm going to include in here are the the 14 CC, who is just becoming a real nice filly, and then uh, the six street band and the 13 lady apple. Uh, I wouldn't completely talk you off Ollie's candy, but I'm you know I'm I'm expecting come dancing. Um, I'm going to kind of take a wait and see approach on that one in here, and I'm fine with playing against Serengeti Empress. So. Let's go 5, 14, 6, 13 in that tent, the Apple Blossom at Oaklawn. And then to close things out, um, just wanted to include, make sure to throw Spike Shirl in there now. She's going to be making her third start off the really long layoff. Um, I wouldn't be shocked with another little bit of improvement in here. He could be really tough and offer you some nice value and maybe a nice way to close things out. So let's use him and all your exotics. The two Kura Love's going to be real tough after coming out of a, a really strong race. And then uh, the 10, uh, Matru, who is in excellent form right now. So 7, 2, 10 to close things out. Let's go through the uh, the pick 5 approaches. I'll play one ticket where we'll go 135 with 23479 with 4568, single the 5 with 2710. Play another ticket where we go three five with three four seven nine with four six eight with five six thirteen fourteen with two seven major horses to include seventh race the three locally owned eighth race the three hog creek hustle tenth race the five point of honor is our back again for another old WrestleMania rewatch rewind recap reboot Andrew Champagne Darren Zocali. Uh, back to join us here on That's What G Said Podcast Boys, thanks for coming back And before we get into um, this WrestleMania Just a really sad week in general for the WWE As um, the WWE just in the last couple of days Had furloughed, basically released, fired um, A ton of their employees, um, producers, staff, um, talent And so it's just it's always unfortunate when a bunch of people that we've seen and that we've grown to know and really talented people all lose their jobs when, you know, something like this is going on. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's brutal. Uh, I mean, it's just a microcosm of what's happening in the world, right? I mean, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's unfortunate that, that this is the situation that many people are in. I think, uh, as I was reading an article today, I think over 22 million people have now filed for unemployment in the country yeah. which just, staggering but you know unfortunately the wwe does not escape that it's it's a business like anything else and you know while the business is run by a billionaire you know the business is also publicly traded and um you know he has a responsibility to investors to try to hit certain numbers and keep the bottom line as stable as possible 
you know, and unfortunately at this time that includes having to make some difficult decisions and, and release, you know, some serious talent, Gallows and Anderson. Uh, I think I read today that Carl Anderson's going back to New Japan. Um, you know, Rusev, yeah. who not too long ago was having a monster United States title match at WrestleMania with John Cena. He was in a huge uh, storyline, you know, on Monday Night Raw for a while yeah. this year, even with the Lana and Lashley stuff, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and some of the stuff just, you know, the, the Drake Maverick reaction was just heartbreaking. Oh, uh, my because, goodness. You know, you just, you just yeah. realize, you know, you don't, you don't think of Drake Maverick as a, you know, a big guy. And, and you know what? To be honest with you, we're all guilty of it. You know, we take it for granted. Like, these guys come out and you just, you know, uh, you'll make a comment like, oh, this is the bathroom break, you know, uh, let me go grab a beer. Or, you know, if you're at the event and, you know, cruiserweights come out, which, by the way, is a mistake because those matches yeah. live are incredible. But we take it for granted. And Drake Maverick is a guy that, you know, I'll admit, I never paid a great deal of attention to because he was just never in a in a huge storyline. Um, and, you know, you see his reaction and you realize that these guys are living a dream. And maybe it doesn't matter that they're not you know, in hour number three of Monday Night Raw. They're doing what they love. And to see a reaction like that where, you know, you work so hard to get to a point and just at the snap of a finger, it's all taken away from you. Your heart breaks for these guys. And, uh, you know, I feel terrible. I hope that as things get better, some of them can come back around. And by the way, I'll make mention also the behind-the-scenes talent. You know, the yeah, creators, producers, yeah. producers, you know, they can't be left out of this either. Um, you know, I tweeted out that yesterday was one of the most difficult days in the history of the company. Has to uh, be. I'm sure there's, there's going to be more difficult days ahead as well. But, yeah, my heart breaks for all of them, and I hope they all, you know, land on their feet and, and they make it through okay. Darren, I'm glad that you mentioned that because Internet wrestling fans have a reputation, not entirely undeserved, of being incredibly vicious and yep. unforgiving. I mean, you look back at the old ECW arena and the fans chanting some of the things that they chanted. I was at the Monday Night Raw after WrestleMania in Northern California a few years ago when a number of fans, several sections worth, were chanting some pretty horrible things at some of the female wrestlers that today I'm sure they'd get kicked out of the arena for. Yep. This is a case where you realize, yes, they're playing characters on television. These are human beings. These are human beings that do things in a squared circle that the three of us maybe in a past life could have done, but for not in this one, heck no. And a dream to do, you know, definitely it's, would love to. <laughs> yeah, and, and just seeing the raw emotion that came out the other day, especially from Drake Maverick, Darren, as you mentioned, and you look at the list of some of the other uh, people that got let go. You look at a guy like Lance Storm, who closed up his wrestling academy in Canada and came to work for the WWE as a producer just a couple months ago, yeah. you look at a referee like Mike Kyoto, who has been, been with the company almost as long as I have been alive. He has been with the WWE for 30 years. You look at some of the other names on that list. And the other painful thing is, had this come during a period of not even economic prosperity, just economic stability? You'd be saying, oh, this guy can go to AEW. This guy right. can go to Ring of Honor. This guy can go to New Japan. Some of these people are going to have a really hard time finding work as long as the coronavirus is yep. going on, simply because that money doesn't exist anymore. A lot of the independent promotions are obviously closed up. 
You look at some of the ones with more national presence, they're not exactly hiring with wide open doors. You mentioned Carl Anderson going to New Japan. That makes sense. Cody Rhodes has mentioned possibly bringing Zack Ryder into AEW because they're close. Some of these people are going to wind up getting lucky, but it's going to be it's going to be tough for a lot of people. And as Darren mentioned, just bringing it back full circle, it's a microcosm of what we're seeing right now. There's nobody that isn't affected by this in some way, shape or form. And then um, the, the hits kept coming this week as the first ever WWF employee, Howard Finkel, who is a voice that, I mean, many of us have heard over and over and have mimicked. And I know I even kind of just said to Stephanie a few minutes ago that a, like a part of me in my heart had like a, a little dream had always hoped that one day I'd get to meet Howard Finkel and, and he'd be able to, to introduce me, even if it was just right there to me, you know, like, Hey Howard, come on, give me an introduction. You know, let me record this for my phone. I think we've all, we, how many times we've, we've thought about it. And it's so sad because he was, he was a genuine fan of the business and is loyal to the WWF slash E as any person has ever been, could ever be. Um, his calls are were incredible, and I didn't. I know I saw Dave Meltzer talking a little bit about it too. I never got to see him on the commentary table. I only know him as Howard Finkel, ring announcer. You know, which I think most of us do. And I got to see a really. We got to see a different side of him in that Legends House uh, show that we mentioned too. Have, we've mentioned before too um, that he was on that reality show that you can find on the WWE Network. He it just is just such a such a bummer, so sad. And I mean, one of those guys that not one person has a bad thing to say about this guy. Yeah, you know, it's funny um, when when I was a kid, you know, some people would, you know, you, you watch wrestling, you know, I want to be Ultimate Warrior, I want to be Macho Man, I want to be Bret Hart. When I watched it, I wanted to be Howard Finkel. Yeah. I I I said this guy's got the best job going. He doesn't have to take bumps, he doesn't get hurt. <laughs> he gets in the ring, the camera's on him, he meets everybody, guy, you know. He always gets a pop when he announces whoever it has, you know, it's just the way it is. And, you know, of course, giving us, you know, for years and no, I mean, that's going to, that's going to live forever. And I, I, I mean, I was at the, uh, the live show at the garden a couple of years ago when AJ Styles uh, beat Kevin Owens for the U S title. And uh, I, I remember I took a video, like a, like a, a video or a, sh- a sh- quick shot of it. And, you know, tweeted it out, and the hashtag was and new with seven W's. You know, it's um, – I mean, grew up listening to him. Uh, you know, loved them as an announcer. His voice was unbelievable. And, uh, yeah, I, it's just a, just been a sad week. And I had a feeling he wasn't doing well because the mm-hmm. most pictures that I've seen of him, he did not look good. I think he was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, there were you know, you could tell that there were probably some issues. But uh, I'll be honest with you. I thought he was much older than he was because yeah, – I did uh, too. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing that he was 69, I look back and I'm like, well, doing the math. So at WrestleMania 3, that means he was 36. He looked like he was 50 back then. (laughs) He did. So um, not to be, you know, just being funny about it. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, Howard Howard Finkel, you know, it's very sad that his voice has been silenced because he's one of the voices of my childhood and I'm sure yours as well. Darren, you said it. Pretty much as good as anybody could have. The one thing that I will add, and I feel like this sentiment will be shared by anybody with half a brain. If this year could stop doing horrible things to good people, 
that would be great. Uh, like, I don't know what we did to deserve everything that we're getting right now, but if somebody could just like hit the reset re- button yeah. somewhere, Flip the switch, please. Uh, like, like Kyle with the internet in the old South Park episode where he goes <laughs> and unplugs the giant plug and plugs it back in. Like, yeah. if somebody could do that, I would really appreciate it and I would be indebted to that person. It's been a really lousy year, guys. Yeah, yeah I, I actually said to a friend of mine uh, literally yesterday. And I said, you know, I my dad died last year, and this year I am is worse. I, I I am in a worse mental state this year from everything that's gone on uh, than I was last year, which is which is shocking. Um, but at the same time, it's just been a barrage. It's overwhelming. Of it's overwhelming. Yeah. It's like one well, it after the stops. next. It, it, it doesn't stop. You know, and it's yeah. weird. It's like little things that not even little things, but things that like like. Before this, Kobe passed away a little while ago and was like, that was the big thing for a while. And like, all not not like we forgot, but like, then the virus comes and that's gone. And, and it's just like one thing after the next of like overwhelming, you, you know, and it's like d- these people that we we love, we lose. And it's just like you said, it's, just, it's not like a one big thing. It's just, obviously there's a big thing going on with the virus, but it's just one after the next after the next. All these people losing their jobs, people getting sick around us. And then uh, some of our, uh, our childhood heroes that we've seen um, now passing away. And uh, you mentioned the end new for me. I always loved whenever he would bust out. And he only did it a few times, though. Once again! You know, with uh, with yeah. Macho Man, he got it. I think he did it with Brett one time, and uh, maybe with a few of the IC champs. But every now and then, he'd he'd switch it up and keep you on your toes. And he even had a, a recent when uh, you know, CM Punk came back and was hot, and Punk like had him come out and announce him because he always wanted like that was like one of the things in his contract where he could get Howard Spinkle to announce him. You know that it was. Um, uh, always a smile whenever Howard came out And you could tell he just loved the business He loved doing what he did And uh, we may never see anyone that's better at that And that is more familiarized with that announcing And the entrance than, than Howard Finkel I mean, he's just going to go down in history And we will all always remember him So uh, rest well, Howard, up there uh, As everyone's saying, like you're going to announce us all One at a time when we when we come up in, uh, And we share with you in the afterlife So um Really sad news for WWF this WWE WWE slash old WWF this week as we make the transition in to talk about WWF from 1997 and WrestleMania 13 and what a weird year as we were just kind of chatting a little bit about before we started recording in that this is me personally my absolute favorite year. I mean, I'm a big Bret Hart guy. So from the beginning of 97, you've got Bret Hart, and you can already tell he's got this little bit of edge. He's already bitter because he feels like he's been getting screwed all the way since WrestleMania 12 in that Iron Man match when he thought he shouldn't have had to come back out. And then he kind of got screwed in his title match in in the end of 96 against uh, Sid. And now he's got to go through the Rumble, and he gets screwed in the Rumble. He wins the title. So you could could feel him turning all, all throughout. But he's in the center of everything going on as, you know, Shawn Michaels relinquishes the belt. And thinks that he may be done wrestling forever But we know that at this point it, it might have been more of a mental thing Because Sean and Brett hated each other We get the rise of Austin We get the rise at the beginning of The Rock And we see him become like the prototype for what becomes The Rock um, In the Nation of Domination We get you know Mankind and The Undertaker coming through Later in 97 we get the first Hell in a Cell We get Kane We get the Montreal Screwjob I mean this is the year where WWE 
turned the tide It started in 96 But this is when things turned back for them Being on equal footing And then back above WCW And with all of that being said This is a damn awful show This is a damn awful show With one really good match Which I will still say is the greatest WrestleMania match ever And then a lot of other matches that I expected To be way better And they just hit. They just did not hit They were flat I yeah, I went back when, when when we decided to skip eleven and twelve. We were talking about all right, thank God, you know, because those two shows would you mm-hmm. know the, we don't have to go back. And no disrespect to Brett and Sean, you could watch that sixty minute Iron Man match the first time and say, wow, they did a great job. You really don't want to have to sit through a sixty minute match again. You just you just don't with but, no falls. Yeah, yeah, with no fall, with nothing happening exactly, and obviously WrestleMania eleven. You know, we know with with that main event and yada yada yada. So when we got to thirteen, I said, okay, this is when things start to turn around. And then I watched the show, and I said, wow, that was awful. Like, and then I then I go back and I read, and and I'm and I read stuff like they were. I didn't realize back then how much of a rut that the company was in. Twenty yep. percent of the tickets in an eighteen thousand seat arena were available two weeks before the show. Yep. This WrestleMania. Did two hundred and thirty-seven thousand buys on pay-per-view? The lowest at that time. Low, and it might yeah. be the lowest ever, right? Lowest if, ever. Yeah, yeah, lowest. Ever. Yeah, it went up to seven hundred and something thousand the next year. But I mean, they were in a huge rut at this point. And you take a look; it's not like there's a lack of talent on the show. No, I mean, man, this is loaded. Yeah, you have you have you know a young Rock. You have a young Triple H. You have, you know, Gold Dust too. You know, I mean, you can say what you want about Gold Dust. Good worker in the ring. Even the Sultan Gold is Rikishi. You know, had like is, is and he was a fine worker as you know Fatu and the Head Shrinkers before that. Yeah. You know, Bulldog, Owen, Mankind. They're in a match together. Obviously Vader. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's just it's just not good. I mean, even that that brawl <laughs> match. It's you know I'm watching it. And I and I really said to myself. I don't remember it being this bad. And the only thing that I could think of, and I'll let Andrew pick it up here, is that maybe the Brett Austin match being so good made me forget how bad the rest of the show me. actually was. It yeah. did. And, and and the rest of the, like, everything that was happening around this, like, I love the 97 Rumble. They did a pay-per-view in your house called Final Four, which was awesome. After that, where they had like a, a cool elimination match where it was also, like, an over-the-top rope. Um, SummerSlam was really good where you had Brett and Undertaker and Austin, uh, Brett and Undertaker and Shawn Michaels in the mix. Like, you had all these moving pieces. But for some reason, like, how does this show fall so flat, Andrew? The booking is incredibly questionable. You look at some of these matches, and we'll go in depth a little bit more on this, but right off the rip, you get a tag match that in traditional years wouldn't have been an opening match. The opening match at WrestleMania is something that's designed to get the crowd fired up. Are you really going to get fired up with the Headbangers, the New Blackjacks, Furnace and Lafon, and the Godwins? Okay, that's a miss. Rocky Maivia and the Sultan? No. Gold does Triple H in another time, maybe. But the way the match was laid out, they had Gold Dust acting as the face character trying to protect Marlena from Triple H. That didn't work because Gold Dust in that iteration was not a face. He would be later, just not in this particular iteration of the character. The tag match between Mankind Vader and Bulldog and Owen 
who was supposed to be the baby faces in that match? They were doing the this way. a lot in '97 too, where it was like they're putting, they're just, they did this on Raw a lot too. It was like there's no one for the crowd to cheer for. Yeah, and it's one thing to do that sort of dynamic and do a heel versus heel thing and see who can cheat more. That's mm-hmm. wildly entertaining, but there are only a couple of matches where it's a traditional good guy faces a bad guy with something on the line. And that's wrestling one-on-one. You want a good guy to face a bad guy with something on the line. That's as basic as it gets. And with the exception of, from what I can count, three matches, you had the main event, Taker and Sid. You had the street fight, which I liked a little more than Darren with one glaring exception. And then you had Brett versus Austin. And I'll agree with you guys that Brett Austin match makes everything else go down a little smoother. So we will set it up a little bit. This is a uh, Chicago, Illinois. This is the Rosemont Horizon, the same place where WrestleMania two was in one of those three different locations. This is March twenty third, nineteen ninety seven, and I think for for some of the reasons why this show was bad, it's kind of why the rest of the year ends up being good. Like the booking is bad because there was a lot of thing. There was a lot of of crazy like audibles they had to call here initially. This show, which is, is kind of funny because we're going to say that the best, it, it, in probably our opinion, at least my opinion, the best WrestleMania match to ever happen, the most, the, the most pivotal, I think, the, the, the most important, I guess, maybe you could say Andre uh, Hogan, was at this WrestleMania, and it was one, it was a match that changed, definitely changed the business moving forward, and. It was not even supposed to happen. It was supposed to be Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels at this match in at this uh, WrestleMania in probably a ladder match or maybe a two out of three falls, like some sort of a gimmick match. Bret was going to get his win back, and they were going to continue to feud onward. But uh, right before the February pay per view, which was called Final Four, uh, Shawn Michaels came out on Monday Night Raw, and actually, I believe it was the Thursday Raw Thursday when he came out and uh, and gave his Relinquishment of the title and said You know I'm, I may never wrestle again um, I have knee problems and I've Lost my smile that was the, the speech that he Gave and he had just Been anointed as kind of the guy the year before And what we started to see this Year was that and, and, it, and it Happened a couple times before but the, the crowd was getting Very Very uh, tired Of the baby face forced down your throat they, the WWF tried this with Diesel in 95 and it didn't work They tried the same thing with Shawn Michaels in 96 and it didn't work Because the crowd really wasn't that as into him in, in this version of Shawn Michaels As they would be later when he became a heel, you know, just a few months later when he was, you know, DX and everything So they had had a problem, I think, trying to, like, he find the next guy And then Bret Hart comes back to the company and while this is happening there's just this this generic or there's just this organic guy who pops up as Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he's never even supposed to be the guy. So because Brett can't wrestle Sean, everything has to change. Brett gets the title for one day. He wins it at this Final Four pay per view. He loses it to Sid. Then, um, like Vince has always done through the years, he says, "Okay, things are going crazy. I'm going to go with the big men." So it's Sid versus Undertaker in the main event, which means Austin. Gets rerouted to face Brett Instead of it was supposed to be Austin against Bulldog at this pay-per-view And just a 
a, a regular match that would have gone to Austin. Instead, we get that Austin Brett match. We get uh, this incredible match that's going to go down in history for, for forever as as one of the greats. So it's it's so weird that we have a, such a bad mania amongst a year where creatively, as Darren mentioned, they were not good financially. Creatively, this is when things started to to really fire back again for them. And uh, I mean, guys, how good was this video package? I don't I don't know if you remember. I think they had this a few times throughout 1997. Um, this this same voice who was narrating, I think it was at uh, SummerSlam also. Um, oh, he was great. I know exactly oh, who you were talking about. It's so incredible, good. and uh, it's the video package, and it's it was from the beginning. It was darker than the the beginning of any WrestleMania that we've se- than we've seen. It wasn't like the pomp and the circumstance. And there were a couple cool lines um, in this that I really loved in this like package to open up. Um, they had said uh, to close things out. It's supposed to be a time of celebration, a time to rejoice. But tonight, none of these men are smiling. I I got goosebumps just rewatching that. Like I love this intro. I love how it set everything up uh, for all the main characters, the major players. Like th- this to me is like one of those all time great in- intros. Yeah, he he actually that voice occurred in a couple of intros. I remember one of them. Uh, he did he did the Diesel Brett intro. I think it might have been at the Rumble, the year that they. Uh, that they were, I don't know if it was the Rumble or King of the Ring or which, Survivor which Series. I think it was Survivor Series, and then might yeah. have been Survivor Series because they, it's a great package. You got the music, and you have uh, like you know uh, Brett going. We're gonna find out who's the best, and and Diesel's coming back at him, and it, it goes to the end, and then you hear Diesel at the end. The music drops, and he goes, you know, I don't like your odds. You know, it was a great video. It's the same guy, same concept, great video package. Get you all hyped. And it got me hot because I'm like, yeah, man. All right, 13, you know, (laughs) and then here come the goddamn Godwins. (laughs) Now, my thing is, regardless of any other knocks that you have with the WWF or WWE over the years, and many knocks are valid. Yep. Their video production team with those vignettes has always been aces. It's just tremendous. The stuff they've done over the years. You look at that stuff, you look at the monster video that they did with Daniel Bryan at WrestleMania 30. Those are just a couple of examples. There's a bunch of really cool things that they've done over the years. And honestly, I think the network is missing an opportunity. Put a whole bunch of them in a playlist and just have people be able to watch the vignettes that they've done to preview some of the big matches. That would be, I think that'd do great. It, it does. They set it up. They set these packages up so well to where it's like, Damn, was this this good live? You know, you always like see the clips, and you're like, they make this seem amazing. And I don't remember it being that good when we watched it the first time through. Uh, nonetheless, we are set for WrestleMania 13, 1997. So we get a, uh, you know what, we uh, we weren't I, we didn't love the '94 commentary team with just Vince and Lawler together. They were bad, but I will say that when you add Jr. in the mix. It's much better with the three of them And sometimes the three man booth isn't great But he definitely just kind of Fills a little bit in He can kind of keep them Like J, uh, you know King can kind of get off the rail sometimes And Vince is a, is like playing an announcer He's not even you know, like a real guy out there JR helps them so much more I will like a lot of negatives in the show But the commentary wasn't bad And, and I even like when Shawn Michaels joins them later He has a couple uh, interesting tidbits in, in the matches So I thought this was a good version of King And I don't really love King Yeah I agree with you I think adding JR to it really kind of brought things out uh, 
you know, th we're getting close to the point where Vince is going to start to become the Mr. McMahon character. This is his last mania. Yeah. Yeah. We're on the cusp of that. So, you know, he's going to start to segue out of this, out of this role going forward anyway. But uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, JR adds a nice touch. You get, you're going to get honky tonk during the international, the intercontinental title match, which is cool. Uh, Shawn Michaels comes out, you know, during the main event, which is cool. But yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a simple show from a commentating standpoint. They don't go too crazy with uh, bringing in different guys to call it. But I, I did think that the commentating uh, was a step in the right direction here. Yeah, Jim Ross added a gravitas. He could mm -hmm. play off of both guys, which is not easy to do when you're talking about two big personalities. And that's one of the reasons JR stuck around as long as he has, his ability to work with everybody. Okay, so our first matchup, we had a four-team ta elimination tag match. The winner of this was going to be the number one contender and get a tag team title shot uh, later on Raw uh, the next night, I believe. So we, we started out actually with a new Blackjacks promo. It's crazy when you see this team that these are two world champions, you know, <laughs> like Barry Windham, a former NWA world champ, and you got, you know, JBL, who's a future world champ, because this just looks so goofy. I mean, the the thing that's funny in wrestling is like isn't isn't the uh the common like trope that anytime you put new in front of something, it's gonna be horrible, which is funny because New World Order is like one of the greatest factions ever. But like anytime it's the new rockers, the new Something it's always just an awful Awful like tag team Yeah yeah I, I couldn't Agree more and you know you try to get That promo to get you into it afterward And they just look so ridiculous Um, You know one thing that I'll, that I'll mention about This match I'm not going to get too much into what happens In the match because it's just not too, enter, too entertaining here but um, You know one of the tag teams Is a tag team that's not remembered much in WWE but could Really really go oh, yeah oh yeah and that's and that's Furnace and Lafon. Absolutely. Um, if you if you watch their stuff in all Japan, in UWA, uh, even in ECW, and you see it, the only parts of this match that are any good from a wrestling standpoint are when they're in the ring. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and you know they they get really no push at all in WWE. But do yourself a favor, go look up the Can Am Express, watch their stuff from all Japan. Uh, I'm pretty sure that they were even um, – I, I know they have a five-star match from Meltzer, and I think it was even match of the year, one of the years in the early 90s against uh, Kobashi and Kikuchi, where uh, it was it, it was uh, right around Memorial Day, I think, 91, 92, something like that. Go back and watch that match. It's on YouTube. Phenomenal stuff. But just wanted to make sure I gave them props yeah. uh, for being a really good tag team in a match that's really just – there it is you know there and i mean they get eliminated for disqualification i have no idea what they did to get disqualified you know the blackjacks i think pushed the referee and all of a sudden it went from four teams to two in a blink of an eye and you're left with the godwins and the headbangers where so basically the four best wrestlers in, in the ring are gone not yeah are gone. <laughs> left with the godwins and the headbangers and it's like and i'm watching it and i'm going wow well okay the, i forgot how much this sucked uh yeah can't wait for this to be over and that that was pretty much it for me. The poor, poor Godwins. Darren, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here because as you know from the WrestleManias that we've done, I'm a sucker for big guys that can move. And the Godwins could move. The problem is they were saddled with one of the worst gimmicks that yep. the WWF, WWE, whatever, has ever come up with. Vince McMahon. 
was on the announcer's mic. And he said during the match, there's no telling what Phineas has been doing with farm animals. (laughs) This is supposed to get over. I mean, I understand that there's going to be bit players and guys that aren't going to be as over as people may expect them to be. There's a glass ceiling for a reason, but that, that was dead on arrival. And they had Hillbilly Jim with them who added absolutely nothing in what he was doing. Everybody in this match tried. You mentioned that Furnace and LaFon did some pretty cool stuff. The Headbangers tried. The Godwins tried. The Blackjacks were a really weird combination because Wyndham was past his prime and Bradshaw was not ready yet by any stretch of the imagination. I'm going to make a little bit of an argument here. The Godwins, in a weird way, sort of remind me of a rural version of heavy machinery. Sure. Two really big guys. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Who can surprise you a little bit with chemistry and potentially work a decent match if they've got the right opponents. The headbangers were not the right opponents. They wind up getting the win here, and Vince goes on the mic after the match and says, some people like them, some people don't. And as they did that, the crowd at the Rosemont Horizon was dead quiet. Nothing. Literally the opposite. How was this supposed to help anybody? I don't know who was in charge of booking or agenting the tag division, but my goodness, they tried. It didn't work. And the tag division was, uh, how do I put this delicately, lousy for a very long time in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. And I agree with what you're saying about the Godwins, and I will amplify your point. I never gave them a second look because from the first time I ever saw them, where they walked out with the bucket of slop. It was just, no matter what they did, it was never going to be for me. They, they were like, been, a, like yeah. a team that was put together for the gimmick, like one of those things that Vince loved, that it was Henry O. Godwin, Hog, and Phineas I. Godwin, Pig. You know, right. it was like one of those things that Vince was like, oh, that's a hog and a pig, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, never, and- never going to, never was, they could have been the best workers you ever saw. When they came out in those overalls with the bucket of slop, and uh, it, it, it was just an immediate turnoff for me. And that's unfortunate because, you know, I was a kid, and it's just, you know, this is a, it's, just not, it's just not going to – I don't have the attention span at that age to pay enough attention to the Godwins, and I never gave them a second look. Yeah, they, they came back, um, or, and it was just a small run where they turned them heel, and they were called Southern Justice – and yep. they were actually like bodyguards and they were in suits and stuff. And it was not, it was, like you said, though, it was just so hard to get them like rolling around the slop in their overalls out of my head. If they would have come in initially as Southern Justice, they might have had an entirely different career. I mean, they got, were, yeah. And I've got two other things, too. Uh, let's not forget Phineas Godwin would wind up being Midian <laughs> and naked later Midian. naked Midian. So I don't know who that guy <laughs> ran over with his car in order to get saddled with some of the worst gimmicks and the, the most head-scratching stuff of all time, but he did. And going off the heavy machinery point, it was a brief storyline, but there was a storyline where those two and Sonny were involved in a storyline that was mm-hmm. pretty darn similar to what we just saw with Otis and Mandy yeah, you're Rose. Right. You're right. It's you got to go way, way, way back. And then I think one of them got hurt and the storyline was sort of abruptly aborted. But it's just, it's weird the parallels you can draw between teams that don't seem to have a lot in common and were around 25 years apart. So um, the Headbangers win this one at 10 39. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I just I never I never got into the headbangers either. I I just, just never they never did it for me at all. And they, they even and they came back not that long ago uh, in like a in one of the WWF like tag team title tournaments in nostalgia and, run. Yeah, yeah, and they had a little a little run uh, just to kind of help get some of the the newer teams over, which is I'm fine with that with that. Um, at the, at this time. The Honky Tonk Man had like a running gimmick for a while where he was trying to find the best Intercontinental Champion, you know, and he was trying to find who was going to be his next guy. Um, he actually uh, tries to make it a, a Jesse James, the Road Dog, the next night. But he comes out and he generally what was happening at this time in '97 is like he would be at commentary for all the Intercontinental title matches or like the Intercontinental Division, so to speak, mid card. So this is crazy enough. Two guys who would end up main eventing, um, you know, plenty of pay per views uh, years later in The Rock, at this point, Rocky Maivia, the Intercontinental Champ, and The Sultan, who was Rikishi. And the Rikishi, uh, the Sultan, had the Iron Sheik and Bob Backlund with him. Uh, Rocky Maivia kind of surprisingly won the IC title on an episode of Monday Night Raw um, not long before this. And he was getting that big push at the end of 96 when he debuted. We could tell in the Survivor Series where he was like, you know, he eliminated, I think, three uh, on the opposing team. And he ends up winning. You, you could tell all along that they love, the, um, you know, The Rock. And it's it's so funny when we, you know, see it. You just were talking about how things, you know, mimic each other years later, Andrew. I mean, we've seen the WWF do this with, I just mentioned how they tried to make Diesel and Shawn Michaels that babyface. They've done it in in many other cases with just bringing a guy up immediately we could tell that this was someone that they they loved and you know it happened kind of with Luger towards the end of his run it definitely had happened with you know Hogan at the end of his run with Cena at the end of his run this happened immediately with the rock i mean the crowd was never ever into this guy at this version of the rock rocky might be a, this white meat baby face i mean you talk about silence and some of the uh other matches or when they announced the headbangers I mean there was a lot of silence when the when Rocky Maivia comes out a lot of silence Throughout the match and 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 this is more This wasn't a great match either yeah, it was Not very good for two guys who you know Got a lot better in the ring and actually had Some really good matches as they, as they Got you know I guess more seasoned But this was more about the the Moment you know when we talk about Wrestlemania Moments this was hey we're gonna have uh, Rocky Maivia and his dad Rocky Johnson is gonna come out and save him And we're gonna have the two of them in the ring together Throwing a punch on uh, You know the Sultan and Iron Sheik and Bob Backlund And and so this was Not a good work rate match um, This was supposed to be like a big Moment for Rocky Maivia to help get him over To get the crowd happy but it just Not a whole lot of things with this Rock babyface character was working Out in late 96 to to Middle of 97 Yeah it, it was just From the mid, beginning with the Survivor Series I mean I think Jim Ross Referred to him as a blue chipper 5,000 Times yeah. um, and if you Listen to this match and you listen to the commentary They're just drooling Over this guy yeah. you know Honky Tonk is there to try to like knock him down But it's just all about This is this is a guy This is a guy that's going to be a, a star Of tomorrow and he's here today and all this stuff And it, it's just First like, ever third generation superstar. They loved oh, yeah. that one, man. Yeah. They loved I mean, saying that one. It, 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 it's just, it's understandable why, you know, people were just not into this guy at all. A lot of the stuff that they did was cheesy. Uh, there was, a, I mean, there was one good spot when he went to clothesline uh, Sultan when he was up against the ring post and Sultan ducked. It was kind of a, it looked like a scary, you know, kind of arm into the, into the, uh, into the ring post. But then there's like later on Sultan quote, 
hits a headbutt off the top rope. He missed them by like a foot. Yeah, I mean, it was bad. And and this match for me was was so bad that at one point I found myself wandering where I was looking at the Sultan and going, hmm, he's got a shaved head. I wonder how long it took him to grow the hair back when he <laughs> like seriously. I, that's how like not into the match I was, which and, is a crazy for a match with the Rock involved in it, right? Right. It's like, wow. Yeah, and and but it's just kind of like this version of quote Rocky Maivia. When I watched it, it was just cheesy. It was you know the whole thing with his dad and all that stuff. It's just cheesy nineteen eighty eight wrestling that you know that. The company seems to be moving away from, but at the same time, they're still kind of. That's such a good head. point. It's like yeah. they were totally un. Like the things that were hitting were everything that was the opposite of this, right? Yeah. And they and they could see that. Yet yeah. they still were trying to force this guy down our throats, right? And, and and you could tell like that they that they weren't blind to it because you were getting matches where it was heel versus heel. You know, we were seeing that. You know. Where they were, they were clearly getting away from good guy versus bad guy, as mm-hmm. Vince would say. Yeah, you know, and they even they even book, you know, Brett and Austin so well that it's booked organically to be a double switch of characters, you know. So they are sensitive to understanding this stuff, but at the same time, they've got this guy that they think is Hulk Hogan, and they're trying to push him like he's Hulk Hogan. So in one part of the company, you're doing one thing. And then with this other guy, you're doing something completely different. And it's another one of these times where it leaves me scratching my head going, you know, what are, what are they thinking? Because it's literally two completely different philosophies taking place at the exact same time. Okay. Here's how bad this match was. I came up with a whole bunch of things that had absolutely nothing to do with the match to talk about. <laughs> so the first you have thing the shaved is, head? Do you have the shaved head on Rikishi? <laughs> no, we don't, we don't have the shaved head on Rikishi, but we've got something else I'll get to in a moment. So the first thing is, Gino, you mentioned the honky-tonk man coming out. Do you guys remember what the payoff was initially supposed to be for this angle? No. No, I don't, actually. The Disco Inferno was supposed to be jumping from WCW to WWF, but there was something in his WCW contract that wound up preventing that, and that's why we got Rockabilly. Yes, because then they ended up putting him together with uh, with, uh, Billy Gunn, who was Rockabilly at the time. You're right. Yep, and that ultimately begat the New Age Outlaws. So it's a wonderful thing that ultimately gets lost to history, but it's a cool little footnote. There's zero reaction. For the Sultan. And it reminds me of when they brought Lord Tensei back from Japan and they were trying to create yeah. this big menacing heel. And then you find out it's just Albert. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's that guy. Now, here's the other thing I came up with. This is my budding career as a stand up comedian. Okay. Do you guys know why the Sultan gimmick didn't work? No. <laughs> Let's hear it. Because the guy behind the mask was, wait for it, wait for it too cool <laughs> waka 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 do, 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 do. he's here every thursday ladies and gentlemen andrew champagne tip drama. your waitresses try the veal and whatever you do skip this god-awful match yeah yeah by the way one other thing i'll add there's a point in this match i wanted to say earlier where i don't know what 
it was supposed to be. But the Sultan starts to like hit the rock with like overhand blows to like the, the back of the neck. And the rock is well, the rock, Rocky Maivia is doing some combination of a Tatanka hulking up in pervy. Kind of doing the one-legged Tatanka stomp with the shakes, while, yeah. While yeah. Also doing the Hulk shake. And then afterward, <laughs> like when he goes, and I'm sitting there watching it going, he literally had to watch Tatanka. Watch Hogan and put the two of them together, and thought he was going to get this big reaction, and nobody cares. Well, in fairness, I can actually sort of see this because if you look at Rocky Johnson's old tapes, he did something pretty similar. similar. Yeah, it was like and his. I think they were trying to go for Rocky Maivia taking something from his dad, but it just looked like he had ants in his pants. Yeah, I mean, this was the the positive about this is that. Um, it gave the it gave the rock the fuel when he did turn to to be because the best heels and to me that was what was the best part of of Bret Hart all throughout '97 is whenever he was complaining about stuff it was legitimate he wasn't making stuff up he was like literally when people will say whining but he's complaining about stuff that like you could very easily say well he's in the right. And so yeah. th- when the Rock Rocky Maivia becomes the Rock and in the Nation of Domination, and he finally cuts that first promo, and you know he says, "You guys all told me Rocky sucks, that you suck," and he, we finally were like, "Whoa!" Like look at look at this guy when he's like unleashed. It was one of those things where you know we listened to him too because he was he was being honest. He's like, "I'm I'm hating you guys because you know all I was trying to do was be the guy that I was told to be, and you guys told me to screw off." So. You know the best heels are the what do they say? They're their heroes in their own mind. You know they're what, yeah. That's what Michael Hayes would always say, and you could tell his influence backstage. Obviously, on stage he was Doc Hendricks, this overly energetic interview guy. But backstage, this was the guy from the Fabulous Freebirds, mm-hmm. and his mantra was, "A heel believes everything he is saying." Again, as we've mentioned in some of these things, wrestling doesn't have to be overly complicated no. in order to be good. The, it's better when it's not The more simple it is, the better it is It's easier to follow along it, it doesn't have to be, you know, like rocket science here And so we were able to see You know, by the end of 1997 It's amazing when you watch this match To think that two years from now This guy's the main, in the main event The Rock You know, like, it's pretty crazy to think about He's, he's you know, wrestling for the title You know, at the in, in the end of 90 in, in just a year and a half, like the end of 98 even or like early even in earlier 98 So um, he, he changes uh, Quite a bit when he becomes The Rock um, We then get Todd Pettengill I believe this is Todd's final mania I think this is it for old uh, old Todd He's talking backstage to Ken Shamrock This was definitely something That added to that Austin Hart match The the addition of Ken Shamrock Here Bret Hart was very influential In bringing him in he and you Could tell they had some chemistry I'm just kind Of bummed we didn't get a little more even with Those two um, because there were really only About I guess six months when when they Kind of had an opportunity to go at it and um, We we get a promo From Ken backstage where he's kind of Talking about how he was uh, you know Beating up a rockabilly Earlier in the week and taking him down and just Showing but the, the at this point this was a big name. He was, you know, the most dangerous man in the world. He had a, a good buzz, and I think he was a 
a lot of times the the special guest referees don't hit or maybe sometimes they even subtract from the match. He really added a whole lot. This was just a promo kind of setting things up and uh, I, I forgot when I was watching this match even like how much of a part of the match he was. He he did a great job in this too. He he did. And and there's an interesting thing about Shamrock here. Um cuz he made his first appearance I think it was probably about 2 months before this on on yeah. Monday Night Raw. Um he had he he had just signed I think it was a three year deal with them, but right before that he was literally a heartbeat away from going to New Japan, and he was going to be fighting um, Hashimoto for the heavyweight championship in the Tokyo Dome, Tokyo Dome in April, and he had he never officially signed the deal, but it was ninety nine percent done. And at the last minute, WWE and Vince came in with a big offer and swooped him away. But he was he was a heartbeat away from going from New Japan as a wrestler. Um, now that being said, I th- you know his job as the quote ref slash enforcer, uh, I thought was great. The promo was good. You know he looked like a I don't know a brick shit house. A yeah, way to describe him. Um, you know he fits fits the role well. And you know he he does do some good work in WWE moving forward when he gets into the Intercontinental Title picture yeah. and the whole thing where he like snaps and goes crazy is like really intense stuff. But I, I thought Shamrock had had a pretty decent run in WWE, and I thought this was certainly a good start. He we got the match before you go into he got the first match against Shawn Michaels after the Montreal Screwjob at the pay per view. He right. was in the he was in the title match, so you could tell. I mean, within six months, you know, eight months from now. He's already like in the quote unquote main event picture. So they were always really high on him. If Ken Shamrock comes around 15 to 20 years later, how big of a star is he? Yeah. yeah. He's Brock Lesnar, but he can move. You're right. I, I loved mean, his stuff. You, I really you did. Look at a guy who has that kind of a resume, that kind of a presence about him. And I really dug the promo that he cut. I thought this was one of the best promos he ever did. I agree. The stuff where he snaps and goes into his zone, it worked for a little while, and then it got old. I liked the face Ken Shamrock that we saw in that promo where he's like, I wasn't trying to break anything. I was just trying Let to him teach know. him a lesson. He's kind of like, cocky, you know, a little cocky. It's effort, and... effortless, and that's yeah. what we mean when we're talking about Things don't have to be complicated to be good. I feel like this is a recurring theme, and I feel like I need to start selling shirts. But here's a fun (laughs) fact for you. This was indeed Pettengill's last WrestleMania. He went on and he did SummerSlam later in the year. They did that show in New Jersey, and I think his main job was to emcee the giveaway of a million dollars that they didn't wind up giving away or something to that effect. (laughs) But I know this because having grown up in upstate New York, after he left the WWF, he wound up working for a news radio station in Albany, New York, the state capital of New York. So if he's happy, more power to him. I know he was there for a really long time. So we then move on to a promo with a Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley at this point with uh, China. And China had just debuted. And this promo kind of focuses in on uh, China's face a lot. And man, this is another this is another one of those where it's like, wow. I mean, the the whole like 
even the baby faces, obviously, because she's a heel and she's on the heel side, like with Triple H aligned with the heel with Hunter Hearst Elmsley. But like the baby face commentators are talking about how ugly she is. You know, like JR is like taking digs at how bad, how terrible she looks. And, and Vince is like, oh, you know, like just like making noises. And I mean, so this is not nothing like nowadays that they would be able to get away with, like talking about how terrible she looks. But I do remember the chi- China was to me. And it, it's obviously a tragedy what happened later in her, her life and everything that that's that's happened. But like this for for a couple years, she was handled, I thought so well. I mean, she she did her job as coming in as this like badass enforcer. And then I thought she kind of was able to seamlessly transition into wrestler. She got the surgeries and she kind of had this like now I'm I'm better, you know, I'm, I want to be more of a better better looking model type. And she kind of you know started playing the the I'm a little more girly. And then she was in the the divas division. And then she was do it like you know wrestling um some of the first ever intergender stuff that the WWE and only intergender stuff that they would do where she was in in the mix with you know with Jericho and Jarrett. And I thought they handled her really, really well. It's unfortunate everything that went done went down afterwards. But she came in, she was a badass, and this match again. Like I'm looking at it on paper, going, "Oh, great! Like we're gonna get Hunter Hearst Helmsley against Goldust for about 15 minutes. Like both of these guys can go." But this was this was weird. This maybe wasn't when like Goldust was his best in the ring. At this point, I know when he was with Marlena, they had a lot of problems uh, behind the scenes. And yeah. Triple H, and he was a, like at this point, what they call a good hand. Like he was fine in the ring. He was just very slow paced and he didn't have the like intense, you know, that we would find later when, when he became like the game and, and Triple H and all that. So to me, the highlight of this was, you know, when. When uh, China's like ragdolling Marlena Which just looked great Like she falls into her arms and she just like Throws her around like a little doll and just flops Her into the ring which was was cool And the stuff like I liked the Marlena Character and the early Goldust stuff but I think You you hit this when you when you were kind of Setting it all up Andrew This Goldust was in a Weird spot because he was Such a heel and so you, you know weird and, and and a good character Like through like late 95, 96 When he came in And then the face turn was I don't know it just it just took a little while To get behind him as a baby face So this match just felt totally flat It was really slow paced I just you know Seeing it on paper looking back at it I just expected a lot more from these two Yeah you know Talking about the two women who really Played such a huge role here um, number one, as bad as China looked, is as good as Terry Runnels. Like, oh, um, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, co-sign, and we'll talk a little more about <laughs> that. Horny little she-devil. <laughs> um, but uh, China, actually, whose real name is Joni Laura, she actually came up uh, through Killer Kowalski's wrestling school. And uh, if you don't know this, she was a heartbeat away from being in the NWO and WCW. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she was trying to get signed by WWE, and the story is that despite her look and how she was found by by actually by Sean and Triple H, I actually found her at a pro wrestling show. Um, and the way that she was going to be presented as this bodyguard, Vince didn't really think that it would be believable that she would be coming in and actually like you know taking on and beating up men. Uh, and she, and he was really balking at the idea of signing her. And then she was contacted by WCW, and they pitched her on the idea of coming in and being the 
you know, the female lead or the female role of NWO. So she was that close to being an NWO. Terry Runnels slash Marlena. It was kind of weird what they did with her because in the beginning, she was like, she was, quote, his Goldust manager. But it was like she really didn't care. Yep. Like she just kind of sat in the chair, smoked her cigars, all like, you know, sexy. Stoic. Yeah. You know, productive, but not really giving a crap about what's actually happening. And then they kind of make it into this whole storyline where Goldust becomes this caring figure for her, where it changes his character a little bit. So you have a lot of weird things going on. The ragdoll part of it and the finish is cool because she, she ragdolls Marlena so much where it looks like she's not even a real person. You know, you're right. It looks like she's ragdolling a mannequin the way that she's doing it. It's really crazy. Um, the match itself, you know, it, it again, it's just not great, which is unfortunate because these are two great workers, you know, in, in when they're at their best. But the storyline to it is kind of weird. It's almost it almost felt like, well, we have to come up with some kind of a weird gimmicky story. So let's oh, I got an idea. Let's take the big bad China and the little pretty Marlena, and we're gonna do something fun with that. I mean, that's kind of you know what came out of it. But yeah, uh, I, again, a match that just kind of left me flat, uh, despite you know some of the cool aspects of the match that did take place. Terry Runnels was with the WWF and WWE, and I didn't realize this, for eight or nine years. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. incredible when you think about it. And when you think about the fact that women's wrestlers up to that point, ballets, whatever, they didn't usually have that long of a lifespan with the no. company. They'd be in three, four, maybe five years and then be out the door. And there just wasn't much for them to do. Right. Because right? they weren't putting out matches. Yeah. yeah. And not only was she there for eight years, she reinvented herself a couple of times because she went from Marlena to Terry Runnels to whatever. She was a host for a little while, more power to her. And it got to where when they ultimately decided it was time to cut her loose, they didn't cut her loose over the phone. They didn't text her as apparently they might've done to a couple of people earlier this week. They wound up flying her into Stanford to tell her personally which is a pretty classy move when you think about it. Now, this match, there's a reason we're not talking much about the match. Yeah. <laughs> this was a 15-minute match with one decent spot at the end. The ending made sense, but did we really need to spend 15 minutes getting there? No. I mean, my goodness, you couldn't have just done a six, seven-minute match with the fat trimmed out of it to where maybe we get some at least fast-paced stuff that moves things along pretty well. It, when I watched this, it was just, it was boring. And this was Hunter Hearst Helmsley before he really got it in the ring. Yep. This was Goldust with a character that didn't really work. And with everything that Dustin Rhodes has been through in his life, thank goodness he's on the other side of it. But there might have been some other things going on at mm -hmm. that point. I think so there were, yeah. And it was just the less said about this match, the better. And it was at about this point where I started cursing under my breath. Gino, why the hell are we watching this WrestleMania? What are you doing? Yeah. And um, I think it was a little bit later after this where he would have the feud with Pillman 
that would that would start to that was a good feud, and that was good with Marlena, and that kind of started to build some sympathy for him, and and he was able to be a, a babyface for a little bit after that. So um, it was just kind of yeah, n- not not a whole lot of positives. We then get a little clip of uh, uh, Shawn Michaels backstage p- punching on the keyboard uh, as you know Shawn Michaels <laughs> has recently relinquished his title. He has a knee injury. He lost his smile. He's wah, not wrestling. Wah, he, wah. He thinks he might be done forever at this point. Uh, up next, it's the British Bulldog and Owen Hart versus Mankind Invader. Uh, Bulldog and Owen are the tag team champs at the moment. Bulldog is also the European champ, and this is when Owen is walking around with the the two slammies that he's carrying uh, everywhere. And uh, Jr. tries to interview them before the match in the uh, in the aisleway and kind of stir the pot a little bit, but they seem to be on the same page. They both say, "Hey." Bulldog's got the two titles. Owen's got the two slammies. We're good, you know, and they kind of shrug it off and um and they're in. But for a while at this point, they were teasing these two breaking up. They were actually in the finals of the of the tournament to win that first ever European championship. It was Owen versus the Bulldog. Bulldog ends up winning it. And then uh, actually it's the the following night, the next night on Monday Night Raw when the Hart Foundation is reformed. And when Brett gets together with Owen, with uh, with Bulldog, and he kind of says, you know what, we're family, we got to stop all this fighting, and he comes out and he starts just cutting this amazing promo on, like, how terrible the family values of America are, and they don't know anything about, you know, uh, what what it's like to be a family. And so this is kind of one of the final nights of them feuding for a while. This had been happening for a bit. It's just another one on paper where it's not bad. You know, it's it's and I guess like I think I preferred this match to you know the my Via match and to the, even to the Triple H um, Goldust match. It ends at sixteen oh eight with a double countout, but it's it it just wasn't great. You know, it was just like it was okay. It, it's not awful. It's just there's just it's just nondescript. There's not a whole lot you remember about it. It's just a a fine tag match with these two. And I think Andrew, you hit the dynamic on this earlier, like the nail on the head. The crowd and like watching this, I don't know who I'm supposed to be rooting for, and 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 so it makes it working a tag match that goes 16 minutes that generally is going to have a spot where you have like the baby face selling for a while and then looking for the hot tag. Like the the crowd's not into that at all in here. Oh, I thought that was to you, Andrew. <laughs> I heard. I heard. Yeah, you know, I, I so so did I, but my microphone was muted. It's the old. Oh, and what what happened? My monitor went black. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I actually liked this match, and I think I would like it much more had I watched it on mute because these were four really good workers. Vader was still taking care of himself at this point. Bulldog and Owen were on track as always, and Foley was Foley. The spot that I remember about this match that I want to give a shout out to was they did a spot where Mankind is running after Owen outside the ring. Owen stops and hits this gorgeous belly-to-belly suplex. And oh, by the way, it just so happens that he did that right in front of Stu and Helen Hart, who happened to be sitting at ringside. And they did some really cool stuff with some of the legends at ringside all night. They showed Tony Atlas once. Yeah, that's a good point. They showed Captain Lou Albano. I give them credit for that. They did a nice job of that. But this was a match where nobody was sure who the baby faces were. 
Owen kind of worked like a baby face for this match because there was an extended sequence where he took a lot of heat and then tagged out to the bulldog who came in like a house of fire and was clotheslining anything that moved. But this was a decent match, all things considered. Easily the match of the night to this point with a bit of a hokey finish that was sort of designed to protect everybody. That's just a reflection of the fact that the tag team division just wasn't anything special. So it's one of those things where, again, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is a pretty good match. I guess I can dance to this. But all of a sudden, we're four matches into WrestleMania, and it feels like a house show. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I There were parts of the match that were good. Mankind does a spot into the post that's good. Vader hits a nice-looking power bomb. You know, Bulldog is working hard. I'm, it, it's kind of funny because... You watch the match and you don't know who the baby faces are supposed to be. And then at the end of the match, they pretty much tell you it's Bulldog and Owen because Bulldog ends up getting the mandible claw outside. Owen is like, you know, down on the knee, you know, trying to, you know, take care of him, see if he's okay. Well, you got the two heels hugging each other, celebrating after a double count out because they did damage. And that, and it probably was you know, laying the groundwork for what was to come the next night with the new heart foundation. Yeah. But it didn't at all connect to anything. No. no. Just, it was just there. Um, the one thing I'll mention about this match that I started to think of again, as my, my mind started to wander, as I realized how bad this WrestleMania was, was how disappointed I was in how they booked Vader in WWE. I agree. I was thinking about that too. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, here is a guy that if you followed way back to AWA, New Japan, and, you know, obviously when he got to WCW and the cool stuff that he did with with Sting and, you know, uh, with Cactus Jack. And, I mean, how this guy in WCW was built up as, like, this invincible, you know, strong heel character that did such good work. And then he got to WWE and... I mean, me being a guy that liked that NWA, WCW stuff, was excited when he came to WWE. And it just never it just never amounted to anything because they just booked him so terribly. And, Luger-like, and it, almost. You know, it was like there were in, – in, in, in the opposite way because he was a heel. You know, it just – there were times when it made a lot of sense to give him the belt and then Sean could have won it back from him. You know, the, 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 I think the one that killed him was really that SummerSlam, right? I think it's SummerSlam 96 where he, he – like the match gets restarted like three, two or three times, and and Sean finally ends up winning when Vader was, I think, announced the champion uh, at one point, and Cornette was really pissed off about this. Like Vince was promising him a main event run. I mean, earlier this year, he beat the Undertaker at the Royal Rumble, and he was in that Final Four match with uh, Austin, Brett, and the Undertaker, like f- for the title. He had clean wins over Brett. He had clean wins over Austin. Like he was. In that main event tier And they just never went all the way from him You know he actually wasn't even bad I think it's early 98 When they turn him face And he's kind of got like a badass like Face run he he turns face And like later in the year and he's in matches Like with the Patriot against uh, The uh, Bret Hart and and, uh, the Hart Foundation and the Bulldog I remember that flag match But yeah it just Completely agree with you Darren that's a great point He They just never went all the way with him Uh, Thanks Sean yeah, the last 
the last thing I'll say about Vader, and, and, and we didn't know it back then, but this could have been the writing on the wall. Do you know what Vince wanted to call him when he originally signed him in WWE? I know I've heard it, but I don't remember it right now. I don't know either. He wanted to call him the Mastodon. Yes, yes, because of that mask, right? The mask that he yeah. wore. Like, like, I mean, this guy was one of the best characters in WCW for years. You get him, and you want to change him to the Mastodon? The like, Mastodon. Like, nobody knows what he, who this is. I mean, that would have been like bringing Sting into WCW and calling him, I don't know, take your pick of whatever, you know, the Hollywood Blonde 3.0. I mean, you know, it, it just... I don't know. It, it really bothered me the way they booked Vader. It really did. There's a couple more things I'll add on Vader before we move on to the reason that we picked this WrestleMania. First of all, the one thing that I will say about Vader is he absolutely nailed the times that he did cameos on Boy Meets World as Frank. Oh, he father. was amazing on there. He That's was a good fantastic. point. Great- well yes. done. Well done. Yeah. I mean, there was that, but. I will counter Darren's question with another fun trivia question. Do you know who the original pick Japan had to be Big Van Vader was? Ooh. Wow, that's a good one. You going to tell me John Tenta? Nope. Ah. Gino, you got a guess? I don't. Jim Helwig. Wow. Wow. Helwig passed on it. It went to Leon White. And it's one of those things where you wonder what would have happened. I mean, if... If Jim Helwig becomes Big Van Vader, he's the guy with Harley Race in WCW. How does his career end up? Does anything happen that alters Hogan's trajectory in the late 80s, early 90s? It, it, that's one of those little things that ultimately winds up changing the course of history in a lot of little ways. And I agree with both Darren and Gino. Vader had a lot of mileage left. He should have had a title run in some way, shape, or form. And this goes to a big problem that WWE had in the mid-90s that we've talked about, and we talked about a lot in our WrestleMania 10 rant. At this time, they really were light on top flight heels. They had an opportunity with Vader. He was right there, and they didn't pull the trigger. By all accounts, Shawn Michaels wasn't crazy about losing to Vader. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately was pretty much it for him as a top flight heel. So uh, to pre-rebirth Shawn Michaels, thanks for that. Hmm. Okay, here we go with uh, Bret Hart versus Steve Austin. And when you talk about the best matches in WrestleMania history, you know, we've mentioned some of them, probably uh, uh, Steamboat Savage. Uh, the two that we saw in WrestleMania 10 could definitely be in the conversation. Owen Brett, uh, Sean Razor. Um, you know, we go to Undertaker, Shawn Michaels later. Um, you, you can make cases for some. The reason why I think this one is is the best match is because not only the work ethic, uh, the work rate is good. Not only is it a, a good storyline with emotion, but what this match and like wh- how this was the turning point. For the company, for these two wrestlers, you know Bret Hart, who has, you know what what ends up being a five time uh, WWF champion, has mm-hmm. said that this was his crowning moment. I mean, he had some great, incredible matches himself that are five star classics, and and he said this was his best moment in making not making. I think Stone Cold would have been a star, probably regardless, but this definitely expedited the process in putting him over. Them turning 
he didn't get put over in winning He got put over in how Brett made him look in this match Like a badass, like an absolute monster Who will never give up, who will not go down I mean, th- this It's a, one thing that I, I get bummed out when I watch this match is Man, could Stone Cold really work before he got those some of those bad injuries too Because it's just a few months later when he breaks his neck And then, yeah. you know, into 98 and 99 and 2000 He's constantly having some issues like neck issues or knee issues or leg issues Because he's working such a crazy schedule But people forget this, you know, the stunning Steve from WCW And this version of Steve Austin, man, he could Go in the ring I'm sure we're going to go back and forth a lot on this match But uh, some of the things that you uh, that you remember Or things that jump out to you Darren Yeah I mean Again I was a big WCW guy In the late 80s early 90s NWA so I knew Steve Austin When he walked in as the ringmaster I went oh stunning Steve Austin You yeah. know like look at this New look alright you know I like it and, and if you remember before he came to WWE He actually did some stuff In ECW with Heyman he was doing like these crazy promos and wasn't doing a lot of work. Cause I think he had an arm injury when he got fired from WCW, but you were, you were starting to see him like the stone cold character was starting to be built a little bit in those promos in ECW. He was talking like himself. And then of course he comes to WWE and Vince makes him the ringmaster and almost screws the entire thing up. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's some great interviews that Austin gives, that Bret Hart gives. I mean, I've seen multiple times that Bret Hart says this is the best match he's ever had, which is shocking to hear. But, you know, the story, and he, and he, and he not talking just about the technical wrestling aspect of it, but he always references the story that's told in the match and how this match did everything it was supposed to do uh, in terms of, Flipping the characters, really, you know, solidifying the Stone Cold character, and Austin, who is a, you know, a guy who will go, you know, he's a he's a no, you know, BS guy, and and he's a guy who, you know, believes that he made himself and and in doing a lot of the things that he did, but he also says that you know he's not sure that Stone Cold Steve Austin exists as we know it without this match, and without Brett doing. And putting him over and getting him over the way that he did. Um, so, I mean, the match itself, there's just so much energy. You know, you could you could feel the hatred between the two of them the entire match. Even though you find out after the fact that these are two guys that liked each other a great deal. Oh, yeah. Really enjoyed working with each other. And one thing I'll say, and maybe, you know, it could have never been better than this. But... It would have been fun if Brett stayed in WWE. Gosh, I know. You know what I mean? If there was like a Brett Austin title feud at some point, you know, and again, maybe it never would have been better than this and maybe we're better for it. But, you know, watching this, it kind of left me wanting more, which is a good thing. Um, But, you know, the match itself, like I said, there's, there's some real good technical wrestling parts of it. There's some parts of it where it's just downright hatred and brawling. Uh, the the spot where Austin gets cut, he was really apprehensive about that spot. Uh, and, of course, there was like a no bleeding thing in WWE, no blading at the time. And there's even an interview where Austin says, and you could actually see it in the match, when 
Brett goes to throw him into the guardrail, you could clearly see Austin says something to Brett. And what that was, was him at the, you know, having second thoughts right before the spot and saying, maybe we shouldn't do this spot. And it's a really good spot because you don't see the blade. You know, you just kind of see him go into the rail, covers up a little bit, comes up, and, you know, he's got the blood and, and we're off to the races. But uh, uh, there's there's a couple of really good moves in this match. One of them, I don't know why it always stands out for me and I wait for it. It's kind of early in the match. There's a swinging neck, neck breaker that Brett puts on Austin that the two of them are in, like, perfect symmetry in the move. Like, it, it's hard to do that move where the two of you just go completely together like you're one person. Uh, and, and that's the entire match. It's There's nothing about this match that I would change, and it is top three match, in my opinion, in WrestleMania history. And if anybody says it was the best match in the history of WrestleMania, I would not argue with them. I can't put it above Steamboat and Savage. This is probably number two for me. Sure. Just simply because... This was booked perfectly, and you can take a look through history in wrestling and see how many times promotions tried to do a double turn, and it didn't take, or it only took with one of the guys. This might be one of the few times in the history of wrestling where both guys turned and both guys got massively more over as a result of that. If you go in and watch this match, the second Steve Austin gets the chair, the first time he cracks it over Bret Hart's back, the place erupts. And it just comes unglued because it almost seems like the crowd is saying, yes, this, we want this guy. Mm -hmm. We don't want the guys that you've been trying to force feed us ever since Hulk Hogan left. We want this guy. And ultimately, thankfully for all of us, Vince listened. But in hindsight, what jumps out at me about this match is knowing everything that would go down six, seven, eight months later with Brett's contract and Brett leaving, the subtle little digs yes. on commentary at Brett mm-hmm. talking about how you know he was acting like a loser, talking about how he was acting like a whiner. I mean... You couldn't have booked that any better if they tried. And I don't know if Vince was sowing the seeds for what happened in Montreal this far out. There are rumors that say he was. Brett's book alludes to some of them, but there's 800 pages, and I really didn't have the time to go searching for it. <laughs> but it's, it's magic. It's a tremendous match. And afterwards, Shamrock plays his role perfectly. And yep. he doesn't do a whole heck of a lot either. He takes Brett down once. And instantly becomes a main event level face, which begs the question again, Shamrock comes out 15, 20 years later as Ken Shamrock in his prime does that to say Seth Rollins. Right. Tell me you're not watching. Yeah. Uh, So the way this was all set up in the year before at WrestleMania, Brett lost the title um, at WrestleMania 12 and, and then Brett was gone. Um, and we weren't sure if Brett was going to be coming back. He was doing some TV stuff. I think he was doing Lonesome Dove. And, yep, Lonesome um, Dove. And so there were discussions of if Brett's going to come back. And Stone Cold started. He won the '96 King of the Ring as Steve Austin, and he started to kind of make his way up the card. And so 
Him and Brian Pillman were actually kind of calling out Brett, trying to get Brett to come back. It was part of the storyline. Uh, Brett returns at 96 Survivor Series. They have a great match with a really fun finish, kind of just like that Roddy Piper finish of uh, of uh, Wrestle uh, WrestleMania. And then and then all throughout, you know, the um, Stone Cold a- after that is like obsessed with Brett. He's like obsessed with him. He's infatuated with just beating on him anytime that he can, interrupting his matches, screwing Brett out of every title opportunity he could possibly get. And we're talking from, you know, November through December with Brett's title match. And then the Royal Rumble comes out in, in January. And when, you know, every year there's always those one or two people in the Royal Rumble who WWE really wants to get over and who they kind of make them look like a badass and they eliminate five, six, ten people. And it, this year it was Austin who, was you know taking people out one at a time He was doing the push-ups in the ring And that um, when he was in there by himself And one of my favorite moments In the history of wrestling Is when he's sitting on that turnbuckle And he's looking <laughs> at his watch Waiting you know he's, he's kind of waiting for the next one to come out And the music hits for Bret Hart in the Royal Rumble And okay. Austin yeah. throws his hands up On his face and just sh- Oh my god And it is amazing And Bret walks down and he points And these guys just they had it, the chemistry from the very beginning. I mean, you would have thought at this point that these guys have been working together for years. You know, like yeah. the kind of chemistry that Brett and Sean had, you know, from way back in their matches and as a tag. They didn't. They just had it right away. I mean, it was unbelievable. You you mentioned the the the, the chair shot, Andrew, which is such a he just lays that chair shot in, and then Brett's doing the work with. With the end, with the back end of the chair, where he's yep. digging it into Austin's knee, and you know, trying to do everything he could to set up the sharpshooter. Brett was so good, always about working the legs. He, I believe, this was one of the first times he busted out that figure four on, on the ring post. He hadn't, he may have done it previously, but if if he had, it wasn't a whole lot. And I mean, that is amazing. And and, and then after Austin gets busted open, there's the one point when. Brett's in the in the in the corner and Austin just gets this like extra wave of energy and just starts going at him and JR is just freaking out. You know, he's like, This guy is a badass. He won't stop. Yeah. You know, he's like, and you could tell there were a couple times throughout this match too, where Jerry the King, who hated Brett more than anyone. He, he kind of got lost in this match a couple times At one point he's like It's just Wrestlemania you know, He just kind of like the fanboy in him comes out And I mean we got I don't know if there will ever be You know there In the more modern era Some of the uh, the stuff with Daniel Bryan And the millions of people doing the yes chants Were awesome like they, it's a great visual I even remember that Raw when he's up on the, on the cage And he's just turned from the Wyatt family And he's doing those are great But the visual of Stone Cold in the sharpshooter with the blood pouring out and like the fact that he's bald makes the blood all over his head even more pronounced. You know, you just see it dripping all and he opens his mouth and he's screaming and it's like it's like there's blood coming out of his mouth even. You know, it's just everything about this image. They could not have done it any better. And they, even even when he's in that sharpshooter, there's a point where it's like. He looks like he's gonna fight out of it. He he breaks it. They they say, "Oh, this has never been broken." And Brett gets it back in, and then Austin's out. I mean, he plays the guy who's like losing his energy before he passes it out better than I've ever seen anyone. He's like grasping, and then he's kind of 
you know, yeah. losing energy. And then he gets a little bit of a rush and he tries and he's, and he's losing energy. And I mean, y- you talked about it, Darren, when we, um, in WrestleMania 10 in 94, when we were talking about how there was like a moment in the ladder match where the ladder like perfectly fell over on top. And it, in these really good matches, it's like they're really good, but you get that extra bit of luck. Just like you said in this match, like with that swinging neck breaker, it's like there's just a little added oomph that everything goes well and makes this match like as perfect of a match as you could moving forward. By the t- like, Bret Hart got cheered coming out to the ring. He got more cheers than booze because he yep. was he was still the guy that was complaining about things that were were real. Like he was really getting screwed. And by the end of this match. After Austin doesn't submit, Brett goes and he starts to beat on him after, and that's when you know Shamrock takes him down and they have the standoff. And it's funny, the good guy Brett would have gone right after Shamrock, but the heel Brett, right. he walks he walks away. I mean, this like, everything about this from beginning to end was just as close to perfect as you could be. Yeah, and there and there are there are certain points of the match where it's like the little things. That maybe you don't realize it when you're watching it, but that like that make the match. I mean, the times where like Austin is on one leg and Shamrock's asking me quits, and and he gets up and he just sticks two middle fingers in Shamrock's face yes. and then falls back over, you know. Or the spot in the corner that you alluded to, where where all of a sudden Austin gets this huge rush of energy and and the kicks and and the the final kick, like you know, he he gives Bret Hart the you know the double middle finger and then gives him a kick in the head. That looks like lethal, you know, and it's just like the spots like that and that make the match so good. And and, and just to, to give a testament, you know, to, to Bret Hart, where when people look back now on a lot of things in wrestling and I don't want to say that people view him as overrated, although I have seen people say that they complain about his promo work, which I actually think is better than a lot of people. Especially think. in 97. Oh, my. Yeah. And if you, if you haven't seen his heel stuff, this is amazing yeah. stuff like later this yeah. year. But if you think of the amount of matches that Brett made the other guy or made the other guy look good, whether it be Austin here, who, by the way, does great work. But, you know, Brett's phenomenal. Bulldog 92 SummerSlam. You know, uh, the matches with Diesel where Nash comes out and says, that match was the best match I ever had, and 98% of it was Bret Hart. You know, when he carried Anvil as the Hart Foundation, the matches with Sean. I mean, the number of times that this guy elevated the guy that he was in the ring with, it you, you can't count them. And if you don't look back on Bret Hart's career, especially watching this match and realizing not only that he was this great in-ring worker, but that he made everybody around him better and is truly one of the greatest that we'll ever see. You're just delusional and you're just missing the mark by a mile. Let's also not forget the two most infamous words in WWE history, Tom McGee. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, if you're out there, if you haven't seen the WWE documentary that they did on the match where (laughs) Bret Hart makes Tom McGee look like the next coming of Hulk Hogan, take a look. It's worth watching. Bret Hart's heel promo work was tremendous. His face promo work never really did it for me, but that I don't think makes him any less great. This is a guy whose gimmick was that if whatever you needed him to do, he would do it. He was a wrestler's wrestler, and he knew how good he was. And 
that's what ultimately puts him into conflict with guys like Ric Flair, who apparently he does not like on a real life level. Ric Flair talking about how he never saw dollar signs with Brett and whatnot. Brett getting defensive about that and pointing to his record and Flair sticking around too long. It's uh, that's unfortunate. And the people that view Brett as anything other than an all time great, I think they're mistaken as well. This is a guy who for many years in the nineties was one of the most dependable guys that wrestling could offer. And all you have to do is look at this match to see what he's capable of with somebody that could go with him. He had a run in, um, you know, when they're doing the, the in your houses, I think the very beginning of like 95 and 96, where he's like wrestling matches with like, um, uh, and Jean-Pierre Lafitte, you know, like that are just great matches that are, it's like, he's pulling these out of everyone. He had a good match with Doink, you know, the stuff with Lawler that he, there was just, he was throwing a lot of crap and he made it as good as you could possibly make it throughout his stuff with, with Yoko was fine. I just, um, I'm with you, Darren. How about his match with the one, two, three kid on the Monday night raw one, which is incredible. Incredible. And that was, and that put him on the map, the one, two, three kid, like for the WWF, like as wow, okay, he's more than a guy who could just steal a win from Razor. Yep. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from, you know, Sean Wallman as a wrestler, but without that match, does he become what he becomes? I don't know. But I mean, you think about, I mean, just the random stuff. I mean, I used to go watch this guy in house shows. I mean, Owen wouldn't have been in the company if it wasn't for Brett. Uh, we don't we don't get any of Owen 94, 95, any of Owen late. Like, nothing, Owen's gone. Yep. If it's not for Brett going to bat for him and, like, saying, hey, Vince, like, I'll get this out of him. We'll get it. We'll get an awesome match and an awesome feud. And, um, yeah, it's just... The, the two guys to me when we go when we've gone back and watched these that I just wish are uh, Brett and Macho Man. I yeah, wish yeah. we could have gotten a few extra years with them oh, in the WWF WWE because man, like Brett going into the next few years, like Brett in like the Triple H would have been great. You know, more Brett Austin. We got more Brett Taker. Brett in the Rock, which we actually got like Brett versus Rocky Maivia matches, but it would have been much different down the line. Like. All, all of those would have been, would have been so, so. I mean, Brett Angle, you know, like give me that, like in a couple years, you know, yep. and and then maybe Brett is one of those elder statesmen who doesn't get hurt from Goldberg, and maybe he's someone who can still come back, not now, but come back for matches here and there. It's just such a bummer. Um, I mean, this was twelfth WrestleMania in a row. In a row, point. yeah. I mean, he had. I mean, this is a guy that at this point had been wrestling for almost twenty years. And he's nowhere near done. No point. Like, I mean, you can watch him in 97. Go watch him in 92, 91, 90. I mean, am I saying, you know, did he lose maybe a mile an hour off the fastball at this point? Maybe. But can you even notice it? No. No, not with, like, the heel, the intensity, with the, the tweak, you know. He's just more aggressive. He's more intense here. This was... This was great. I mean, this was great. It went 22 minutes and five seconds. And um, Austin was actually in the sharpshooter for almost two minutes um, yeah. b- before he ends up passing out, which is, is crazy. Like, it doesn't sound long, but like in wrestling terms, like dude, just in a move for two minutes in the ring is a hell of a long time. And I mean, this is on any list that I make, 
this is always right there um, towards the very top for me, and I have it as a as the actual my my favorite personally, and uh, to me the best WrestleMania match ever because what we saw after this was Stone Cold became, uh, Steve Austin became the biggest star in the history of wrestling. Uh, he, he became the biggest draw in in wrestling, and he had a run over the next, I guess, three and a half to four years that was better than any three to four year run that any wrestler, including Hulk Hogan, including you know Goldberg or whoever had these these monster runs, ever had. Any run that Flair ever had, like the Austin was at the peak. He sold more merch. He sold more tickets. The ratings were best. Everybody knew who this guy was. And honestly, it all got kickstarted right here. With Bret Hart and this double turn And then Austin was just off to the races And um, it was funny Because later in the year Austin would get hurt And they would do a great job This was one thing they did in 97 Because not long after this Wrestlemania Bret gets hurt And he's actually in a wheelchair at one point Which is, is kind of funny when he's in there And they're, they're doing a good job of like keeping him in it That's what they did in 97 Like Sean was hurt or we thought he was done But he was still in storylines, he was still co- on commentary. He was still cutting promos. Brett was hurt, but he's still with the Hart Foundation. And then when Austin gets hurt and he's not able to wrestle, that he was so hot, they were able to keep that heat all throughout um, by having him cut promos and like stun people here and there, and the tease of when he's going to stun Vince. So they did a lot wrong in this WrestleMania, but damn, they did a lot right in this freaking match. Before, before I move away from it, let me pose this question to you guys. So. If I remember correctly, the timeline of it, Vince gave Brett the contract somewhere in in '96. That yep, twenty year, 20 year. Deal for like a million and a half a year, I think it was. Yes, something like that. Yeah. So I don't remember when Vince goes to Brett and tells him the company's not doing well. I can't. I can't afford to pay you this. I need to be. You know, we need to forget this contract, and you should go see if you can get your WCW offer again. I, I don't do, know. I, I think it's yeah. after it's it's after Brett won the title at SummerSlam, and it's so. when, yeah. it's when he yeah, had it was the title. August or September. Yeah, yeah. So that was about when it was. And here's that my was when all the nonsense happened. So here's my question: If you're Vince McMahon, and you go back and you see this match between Brett and Austin, and you see coming out of it what happened with Austin. And how he got catapulted to superstardom. How do you come up with the business decision in your head that you can't afford to pay Bret Hart? I don't know. Darren, I can actually answer this question. Sure, go ahead. Because screwing Bret Hart the way that he did was the birth of the Mr. McMahon character. So you, yeah. so you think, so wait, wait. So you, I'm, glad, I'm glad we broached this subject now because this will be fun. So you're of the opinion that Vince was laying the tracks long before and that that event was well premeditated and in Vince's mind was going to create this super heel character of himself. You don't think that that necessarily all just happened organically from it. You think that that was actually a master plan. Not entirely a master plan, but maybe but somewhere do, in between. But I do think Vince saw August and September, Austin being red hot. Obviously, you couldn't foresee Shawn Michaels, his real well, pet project. Well, he's back. He's been, he's been right. trying to get over, get hurt by the Undertaker several months later. He's thinking, 
I've got Austin. I've got DX. I've got all of this. And oh, by the way, we can make a living out of the Austin McMahon thing for a while. But I've got this albatross of a contract that I signed out of deference to thinking I needed this guy that maybe I don't need anymore. Vince McMahon, and we found this out this week in a really unfortunate callback to what we discussed at the top of the show. We found out Vince McMahon can be a ruthless businessman when he has to be. I am not saying there was a conspiracy against Bret Hart. I'm not saying that this was premeditated for a year or whatever. I think some of the things that Brett talks about with laying the groundwork for that are a little bit far-fetched, even though it's a really eerie coincidence. I do think there was a way that Vince justified it in his mind. I'm not saying it was right or if it was wrong, but that's the way that it certainly seems like it came across to me. And then when it happened, you had Vince McMahon as the guy drawing the ire of everybody You had Shawn Michaels as the guy drawing the ire of everybody. And you had Stone Cold Steve Austin there ready to be the number one babyface. Now, I don't necessarily think there was a conspiracy in mind there. I do think Vince thought long and hard and went, do I really need to pay this guy a million and a half a year when WCW is taking a lot of the talent, has the NWO, has Sting, who is white hot? I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying I get where he might have been coming from. Yeah, I mean, Gino, like, I I get what Andrew's saying. And the part that always sticks with me coming out of this run in 97 leading into the screw job is that after the screw job, everybody made out. Yeah. You know, the Vince characters created, Sean's got the belt, Brett cashes in at WCW. You know, the Monday Night Wars, you know, go into, you know, the ratings for both shows start to just go through the roof. Everybody makes out. And is that a coincidence, you know? And, you know, Brett Brett just so happens to have that Wrestling With Shadows crew following him around in the months leading up to it, you know? It, it really, it, you know, it, it, it might be grassy, second gunman, grassy null type conspiracy stuff, but... There's just a lot of things that very conveniently fall perfectly into place, you know, over the next six, seven, eight months from here, where everybody comes out of this smelling like roses. Now, really quick before we move on, none of this would have been possible from a WWE standpoint had WCW not screwed everything up, starting with the moment they got Brett and decided... We want him to be a referee. Yeah. Not only that, then you have the Hogan Sting match, which initially winds up with Hogan winning in three minutes, Brett doing the whole, you know, I'm not going to let this happen again thing. And that was just God awful. And then you, the next year they had Goldberg streak and they killed him off. And then you had the finger poke of doom. It was a comedy of errors from WCW standpoint. And obviously Vince had no idea that was going to happen. But right. the one quote that I do remember from an earlier instance where Brett thought about jumping, it might've been the early nineties before Brett Hart became Brett Hart. But Vince took Brett aside during negotiations and said, WCW wouldn't know what to do with Brett Hart. Hmm. I think he never forgot that. And I think he was right. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's a great point. Can you imagine if when Brett showed up in WCW, if his first confrontation would have been gets in Hogan's face, knocks down the fourth wall, and says, from the bullshit that you pulled after WrestleMania 9, saying I wasn't the guy, you wouldn't do business. It's given me goosebumps to think about it. You it really is. Like that would I mean that would have been the first conference. You like forget it. And how do you not do that? It doesn't make any sense. It's like already built for you. You have him coming over and you put him in as a ref. Yep. You know, and it was like there were there were some moments in WCW where he had some good matches, but you could just tell he was he was pissed. He was hurt. I think he was hurt. He was a WWF guy through and through forever. You mentioned it. This had been 10 WrestleManias now in a row where Bret Hart had been. And I think he was hurt. He felt like Vince was a family member with him. Like, you know, there were the rumors of like, he's going to have a 20 year contract because they'll be able to pay him later. Even if he's just an agent. And he like Vince talked about grooming Brett to maybe even be the next Vince. You, you know, like it, it was that kind of a relationship with those two guys. And so I think he was really hurt and he just was never, never the same. He had some, ironically enough, he had a really good match with Benoit. He had a, he had a couple other good feuds. There's okay stuff with Hennig. There's okay stuff with Flair. Um, and he's in, he's in a couple different spots that are, that are not bad, but it just never, it's, it's not the same Bret Hart that we ever saw in WWF when he, when he goes over to WCW and, and that was sad. And, uh, and now we move to the the last couple here. Um, first, it was an interview with the uh, the Nation of Domination with Farouk. We get a Chicago street fight coming up. The wrestlers were Farouk, Savio Vega, and Crush. But you you had D'Lo uh, there too. He wasn't really wrestling yet at the time. He was still in the in the suit. And um, it was the LOD and Ahmed Johnson in a Chicago street fight. This was a a match where this was like heavily influenced by ECW because ECW was really hot at the time and WWE was doing like some some stuff with ECW so you could tell they they wanted to kind of give this a shot and because at this point I mean Ahmed Johnson it's funny to look back on like in you know growing up 1996 he's in the picture it's like oh man look at this guy they're really high on him I like this guy you know and and you watch back and you read and everything and he is just so awful in the ring and like an unsafe worker he like hurt a lot of people and would hurt himself um because of that Vince really liked him he liked his look and in he it just felt like it felt like forever it was Ahmed Johnson versus the the Nation of Domination and Farouk. It just felt like this was going on forever, and then there was never really like a definitive ending to it. Um, I, I will say, Farouk played this character damn well. I kind of forget how how good Ron Simmons um, was at playing the Farouk character um, because he was like you know white meat baby face like all American in, in WCW before that when he won the title and. He he does a great job here as like the monster, you know, like Malcolm X kind of um, um, leader here. And this is just a schmoz fest, you know. This is like ten minutes plus of these three guys, no tags in this match. They just are all beating each other up with weapons and stuff. There's really no camaraderie to it. But I think I I feel like I guess I'm probably more on the the Andrew side than the Darren side, just from hearing some of your your thoughts earlier. I didn't hate this. I didn't love it, but when I start comparing it to other things on the show, this starts to stack up pretty high. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, compared to the rest of the show, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I mean, I was a big LOD guy to see him, see them in this kind of match. 
you know, kind of aggravated me a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, you have a tag title match before, you know, I mean, and then you got LOD and this kind of street fight thing. I mean, it's just, it's just a big melee. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's what you expect it to be. By the way, um, Ron Simmons here, I mean, Farouk, he gets really hurt. He hurts his shoulder bad in this match. And I think he either needed surgery or comes close to needing surgery or something to that effect afterward. But yeah, watching this match back, I, I same thing as you. I went back and went, man, Ahmed Johnson. Everything is just a thousand miles an hour, and it's so awful. Um, you know, I'm surprised that he didn't hurt people worse than he did. Uh, the other thing that I when I watched this match, and I guess it, that they weren't going to do it because of all the stuff that they had, but I can't believe they didn't change the canvas with all the blood on it. Why no? Well, I think what happened was, and just to Vince didn't know they were going to do that. That's and, you right. know, the, like all the stories are is that you know Brett and, and Stone Cold even said, "I don't think we should do this." Vince is going to get mad, and Brett said, "Brett actually had said I'll do it because uh, at this point Stone Cold had never bladed in right. his entire life, and he was like, "Brett, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't right. even know how to do this." And Brett was like, "Okay, I'll do it for you. Then we're not going to have you like trying out there on WrestleMania and, and right. screwing things up." So right. Brett ends up doing it, and you could even tell at the end of the match. When he, when Austin's passing out, Vince kind of makes a comment like, "Um, did he pass out from blood loss? He doesn't even. Yeah. He, he really doesn't know what what's going on there." So, um, <laughs> yeah, that that I think that was the reason why. Yeah, you do you do get uh, with the match, you do get a nice pop for LOD uh, at the end because LOD always gets a pop, you know, after they win. Um, but again, I would have just considering how this show was booked, and considering the lack of talent. In terms of the tag teams at the time, I just wish LOD would have been in some other spot in this match. And that's the kind of negative thing I take away from the match. The match is okay. It's not it's not horrible. It's not great. It's certainly not the worst thing on the card. I could have done without, you know, half of Ahmed Johnson's ass hanging out at the end of the match. He's getting uh, hung at one point, which, yeah, which is I, absurd. He's like yeah, getting hung absurd. by up by the yeah. ring ropes. Like there's yeah. a noose around his neck. It's yeah, like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah, there's parts of it that make you, you know, kind of cringe. But you know, look, you get LOD getting their arms rings. I guess there's worse things that could happen. Okay. I really don't like that I now have to be the devil's advocate for every worker that you two <laughs> don't like. But I'm going to do No, that. no, you <laughs> can't here's no. Come on. Okay. Here's why. <laughs> no, listen. He's a horrible worker. He's incredibly okay. unsafe. Okay. But the one thing that I will give him, if you remember over the years, Vince McMahon at several opportunities kept trying to shoehorn guys into the Legion of Doom, and it never worked. You remember Darren Drozdoff? Yeah, yeah. You remember Heidenreich? Yeah. Didn't work. Ahmed Johnson comes out with those badass spiky shoulder pads for the only time in the history of the Road Warriors I bought a third guy being with yeah, him. I, I, I can get on board with that. I can get on board Thank with him you. fitting I along, wasn't going to go crazy, them. although yeah. hearing Darren go apoplectic on the other end of this Skype call was more <laughs> uh, But the, you, you sort of hit it. There were some spots in this match that were really good, but it suffered for a couple of reasons. First of all, the noose thing was just weird. It, it wasn't an oh-my-God spot. 
It was a, oh my goodness, why the heck are they even doing that? They're putting a noose around the black guy's neck. No, just stop it. No, (laughs) you don't have to go there. But the one thing I'll say about this match is it wasn't as good as it could have been and not for the fault of the guys in the ring. My theory is WWE didn't know how to shoot this stuff at this point. You put this match out there now with the camera crew that WWE has and the experience they have shooting these wild brawls and cutting back and forth, it turns into a much better match that way. But they almost missed the finish of this match. They have to cut back to the ring really quick to see the doomsday device. They missed the spot on the outside with the fire extinguisher and they have to do a replay. It's a camera crew that is not used to doing those kinds of matches. And you can tell judging by the camera cuts. And you can also tell that I was a television radio major in college from the way I'm approaching (laughs) this. It wasn't a horrible match. And I understand what Darren is saying. Personally, I I don't mind LOD being in this match, especially a Chicago street fight in their hometown of Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. I'd have put this as the opener because there was nothing in the first hour, 15 minutes, hour and a half of the show between when it started and Brett Austin that fired up the crowd. You know, you're going to get the road warrior pop too right away. You know, immediately the opener. That's a good call. Vince, Vince learned his lesson because the next year, as Darren will almost certainly remember, WrestleMania begins with, oh, what a rush, and LOD coming out with, I'm sorry, Darren, who was their manager? Uh, That would be uh, the fantastically, phenomenally vivacious Sonny. I know you want me. Yes, (laughs) Sonny before Sonny went crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, By the way, one thing I'll add about the spikes, Andrew, uh, Ahmed Johnson stole them after WrestleMania. (laughs) I would have too. Are you kidding? Those were cool spikes. I'd have done that. That's great. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, So we get to uh, so so sad even to to see it with right now with like uh, Howard Finkel welcoming Shawn Michaels to the ring. He's going to be on commentary for the main event match. So uh, Michaels come out as he meant as we mentioned he had lost his smile recently. He was out of action with a knee injury. He had to relinquish the belt. A lot of the rumors were that. He just didn't want to lose to Brett at WrestleMania, and so that's why he kind of faked the injury and was back in a few months and um, and kind of screwed up everybody's plans here. But you could just tell, like, when he's coming out to the ring, and just, Vince is just, like, going ballistic with Sean and how the greatest ever and this and that, and the people just aren't that into him, you know, and this, this version. And, you know, even in late 96 and early 97... Sid was getting cheers in the matches against Sean because they did not like that baby face anymore that it was getting forced down your throat and he was dancing and singing and, and he got up and he was doing his thing and Vince says, oh my god, look at him, he's, he's a ham, he is a great A ham, he said something about, which was, you know, and I will, once he got on commentary, I thought he did a good job and he added some some interesting things, I like the part where he says about The Undertaker, he's like, Sometimes it's smart to be scared, you know, or we, or we got to be able to give in to, to the fear, you know, which was cool. And he added some good tidbits here. There was some good stuff with him and, and Lawler on commentary. Um, and, and then we got, you know, the big man match here. We got Sid and Undertaker for the title. We got, um, you know, Sid main eventing his second WrestleMania, which is pretty crazy to think about, you know, that he main evented uh, multiple WrestleManias here. And this was, I think, one of those things where, 
so much crazy is going on in the in the company. We don't know what to do. Sean's gone. Um, let's just put the title on old faithful, old steady Undertaker. And it was okay. It was a plotting kind of match. It wasn't great. It wasn't bad. But I do recall at one point JR mentioning the streak. Or mentioning that Undertaker was undefeated so far at WrestleMania's. So whether or not they were booking him going forward for the next couple of years with the thought that he's undefeated, it was kind of cool to hear it mentioned at least once. Um, what do you think about this match, Darren? I think the first two thirds of it are pretty bad. Um, they're slow. The holds. You know, like the slow things down, you know, to rest, I think are bad. Uh, I, I, as a kid, I'll tell you one thing. Skid, Sid always scared the hell out of he, me. Me too. Me yeah. too. He was a scary dude. His character was cool. Um, one thing to note, uh, Sid only had two WrestleMania matches. Uh, you could do worse. Both yeah. main events, <laughs> one against Hogan, one against Taker. Not bad. Yeah. Um, it shows but, you what they thought of him. It does. It does. And uh, I always liked his character. I thought he was an underrated worker in the ring. I was a Bret Hart guy. I hated what they did with Bret here. Yeah. Amen. I yeah. hated it. I, I thought it was over the top, coming out, pointing at Sean, Vince getting behind Sean. Don't worry, little buddy. Yeah. Okay, don't get up and go in and fight the big bad hitman. This was, like, so annoying to me. And then he keeps coming out. Like, why are you doing this to them? Like, it just – and maybe this goes to Andrew's point where maybe this is Vince slowly – Laying the pavement, yeah. Laying the groundwork and slowly chipping away at the foundation that is Bret Hart. Um, the ending of the Bret Austin match with the Shamrock interaction was just perfect. It's yeah. like he goes back after Austin. Shamrock gets him. You tease something with those two. Just that's all. That could yep. be it right there. Boom. That's a great like last thought of Brett. Him being the Weasley heel, like running away from Shamrock. Yeah, and and I've seen, I've seen interviews with Brett talking about some of the heel work that he had to do in '97, and he really undersells how good he was at some of it, and he talks about how. He was really uncomfortable with the anti-American stuff. Uh, he mentions once about talking about how, like, if you were giving an enema to the United States, you would stick the hose <laughs> right into Pittsburgh, and how, like, he would never say stuff like that. And I, but I've never seen Brett talk about him having to come out this part, this interaction. Yeah, I would love to know what he thought about this because I would have to think he hated it. Um, and as a bread guy, I hated it. And I thought it was way over the top. I, I The match, I'll let Andrew speak now. The match, I thought the first 14, 15 minutes really weren't much. I thought the finish was okay. I hated that Brett had to keep coming out and interfering. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I, I really don't think you had to get Sid for 22 minutes or whatever it was. 15 would have been fine, yeah. 15 would have been fine. But that was my take on it. The Brett thing really is with this match is a real big thorn in my side. Well, going back to even before this match, Shawn Michaels entrance where he deliberately goes as long as he possibly can seeming (laughs) to interact with everyone in the front row from the aisle to the commentary booth takes four minutes. 
Yeah. <laughs> Name me somebody else in the company that would have gotten away with that. While and Vince is praising him, like as he's doing it, <laughs> it's just—it's yeah. so bizarre. And yeah, the crowd's cheering him, but you get the sense they're cheering him because they think he's done. And obviously, we know he wasn't done, and he may well have just been pouting because. They wanted Brett to go over at WrestleMania 13, and he said, no, I've lost my smile. I'm going home. But the match itself, nowhere near as special as the Sid promo right before it. Anytime you get Psycho Sid, Sid Vicious, Sid Justice with a live microphone and no governor, you are going to get something glorious (laughs) and that's what we got here with him stuttering all over himself for the first couple of lines and then the rest of the promo you can't hear it it's inaudible and i know he was trying to go for the jake roberts i don't have to yell and scream to make my point but you have to at least speak (laughs) and it was just so awful and so miserable But the second he comes out, fans are literally fawning over him. They love Sid. When he's pointing, saying, who's the man? There are people, literally guys who are not much younger than us, saying, you are, you are, you are. And they're fawning all over this guy. It's Arn Anderson once said, if anybody had a better look for this business than Psycho Sid, I don't know who it is. And something like that. Makes you realize why. And then the bell rings. And this match was slow. It was plodding. Undertaker hadn't hit his work rate period yet. And he also hadn't discovered, wait a minute. I have freaky chemistry with these guys that can bump. I should just work with them. Period. This was Taker in his big man versus big man period. And I agree with Darren. I actually liked Brett coming out right at the start and whining, but it should have ended there. Personally, the way I'd have booked it, Brett talks about the people in the ring. I'd had him go into Sean's face, have Sean kick him, and then have somebody carry Brett back. I think that would have worked, especially given everything we knew about Sean and Brett then and everything that since come to light. But he shouldn't have come back twice during the match. It made the title match seem secondary to something that happened less than an hour ago, and it devalued what was already not a great match. It was better than Lex Luger, Yokozuna, but it was no great shakes. We do get the ending with Undertaker celebrating with the belt, and I get why they gave Undertaker the title, but at the same time, you're wondering, wait a minute, Taker would lose the belt to Brett later in the year, why is Brett helping Taker win the match here at WrestleMania? My head hurts. It was just yeah. one of those things where it was needlessly complicated and overbooked. Sid would be gone not long after this. And he actually Taker, turns face. Would stick around a long time. He was, tur- yeah. he was in the midst of a face turn because the crowd was just so into him. Like the next night on Raw, he actually cuts a promo um, that's kind of like, uh, on mankind and he cuts a promo Talking about how like Undertaker was the man And Undertaker beat him fair and square And this and that which is kind of interesting to see So it, it is to me If you take The Brett Austin match Off of this show This show is like the quality of Wrestlemania 9 
but it doesn't even have that like nostalgia of like it being at you know the the way that they set up the Caesar's Palace, you know uh, everything. This you take that match out, and the rest of this show is just not very good. Um, it's matches on paper that that are that look like they should be better. So this is one that I've. I, it's it's weird how how you remember things, right? Like when we talked about it, we we all were like, oh yeah, yeah, WrestleMania 13. And then when we dig into it, it's like I'm glad we go back and watch it because every time I get an opportunity to rewatch that Brad Austin match, I'm I'm fine, I'm better for it. But you know, the rest of the show, Darren, I mean, you could tell that we've all been kind of negative on a lot of the matches and a lot of the things, and there weren't that many big WrestleMania moments. And it, I think a lot of it has to do with. You have to have high expectations when there's a show like this that's got the you know the Rock and Sean and, and Triple H and Goldust on the on the show and you know Bret Hart and, and Austin and the Undertaker like we're not talking about a bunch of jabronis here. No, yeah, well that's what we, yeah. There's a lot of talent on, on there and, and future talent also. And uh, the other thing I'll say is you're right. I mean, if you take Bret and Austin out of the show, I mean you can. Make the argument that it's the worst WrestleMania of all yep. time. Yeah, uh, if that match is not on the is not on the card. Um, one thing I I didn't like, in addition to the Brett constantly interfering, I really don't like that Under Undertaker really doesn't win this match clean. He wins this match because Brett, you know, does a uh, top rope kind of you know neck breaker clothesline thing on Sid, who turns around and goes into a tombstone. So it's not really a clean win. That always bothered me. Um, I do like the fact that we end up getting... I like the Brett Undertaker SummerSlam match that comes out of this. Uh, I enjoy that match. I love the ending with with Sean screwing Taker and and all that. I, I love how that whole story develops. But I don't like the match. I don't like... How Undertaker wins. I hate the constant Brett stuff. And again, it's hard for me because as a huge Brett guy, the fact that this was now Bret Hart was really bothering me. And uh, I thought it was overbooked. I thought it was overdone. I thought it was overcomplicated. And uh, yeah, I mean, going back, I did not, until I rewatched the whole thing from start to finish, like we said, I did not realize how bad of a show this was. Sans. Uh, Hart and Austin. I mean, who decided we were going to watch WrestleMania 13? <laughs> <laughs> Whose call was that? We need to find it was that Milo. Guy and, and Milo we did find, it. We need to find some way to, to torture him. And don't you dare try to throw your kid under the bus, Gino. <laughs> Stephanie and I will find some way to work against you in some way, shape, or form. We've already teamed up on you and your glee obsession, which That's is true. just a painfully unfunny show with people who can't act. Do not put anything past us. And rest assured, when Milo gets old enough to start remembering stuff, Uncle Andrew's going to have a really good time. <laughs> well, fellas, uh, we'll have to uh, discuss what's going to be next. And maybe we go back to... Um, because I, I think we, it's more fun when we're watch, like the old ones. I think the older we go, uh, we have fun. So maybe we kind of circle back and hit some of the ones that we haven't hit yet. I know six is one that we've discussed a lot. I, I, I think we'd have fun with six and eight for sure. I think those would be two oh, shows yeah. that we could we could definitely enjoy talking about. I'm gonna hit up. Uh, I'm gonna hit up WrestleMania four. It's so funny because Jason Beam 
who wanted to talk about WrestleMania 9 with me, you guys are, are saved again because when I asked him what would be the next WrestleMania that he wanted to talk, he picked four, which is weirdly one of my like favorite. A lot of it because of I remember going to the video store and it being one of those two tape ones that you could yeah. rent. So me going, oh my god, I get more matches I get more with Wrestlemania 4 So uh, Jason Beam and Derby Danny K Are going to join me next week And we're going to go back in time and talk Wrestlemania 4 So I think 6 and 8 Maybe our next two Maybe we'll just like plan on on doing 6 next And then 8 And then we'll figure out moving forward If we can do some of the, uh, the ones like right around uh, The late 90s into 2000 But I think as you mentioned once we start getting to those six hour shows It's going to be hard to rewatch those Do a full recap So maybe then we'll start We'll start flipping it to you know some Summer Slams or a King of the Ring or just kind of any memorable pay per view. We can do um, you know the hell, a couple of the Hell in a Cell matches here and there in your houses, just some fun stuff. But uh, yeah. we just are about to pass the two hour mark on recording. We're gonna do it one of these days, fellas. I think this was only a two hour and forty five minute pay per view, and uh, we're over we're over two hours. So um, I. I you mentioned this last week, Darren, but I've definitely looked forward to. Um, it's been, I think, four weeks in a row now on Thursdays where we've sat down and we've had our uh, our wrestling recap conversations. It kind of with with not a lot going on in the world. Um, it's definitely something to kind of circle and give me to look forward to. And I really enjoy kicking back and talking with uh, talking wrestling with a couple of my buddies. So, uh, Darren, thank you very much, and let it, let the folks out there know where can we find you on social media. Yep, you got it. By the way, if you want to try to beat it, fourteen is real short. I think 14 is like an hour and 18 oh, minutes. Yeah. Okay, good. Cool. We got a shot if you want to go longer than WrestleMania. I think we can do it. I think yeah, we can do it. 14's darn good, too. I love that show. That's a yeah, good so show. Let's, let's oh, circle those three as maybe our, our next ones to do. Six, eight, and 14. We'll kind of uh, put it, put no in the back problem. of our head. So let's let's go back to six. We'll we'll do that one for our next one. So if you guys want to go back and start watching six and, uh, and researching six, and we'll, we'll talk some... Hogan versus Ultimate Warrior. Andrew, buddy, I appreciate it, man. I've uh, I've used you for uh, many different shows with horse racing stuff, and uh, I'm going to start doing the same with Darren. I'm going to abuse him next week for some NFL draft stuff as well. So uh, I I love you guys, man. Thanks so much for coming on again. Where can we find you, Andrew? Uh, at Andrew Champagne on Twitter. Myself and JD Fox is a cheap plug. Have doing some good stuff. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, we're pretty excited about that. I've been learning a lot about Australian racing, specifically that I can burn money there just as well as I can <laughs> racing in the States. But uh, we're going to be taking a look at Oaklawn Park this week. I'm looking forward to that good card coming up on Saturday. Saturday. At Andrew Champagne on Twitter. And I'll be hopefully putting out a lot of really good stuff sooner rather than later. So stay tuned for that. And of course, I'll be here every week talking about wrestling and finding ways to twist the knife a little bit on two of my best <laughs> friends of the game. <laughs> oh, love it. Love it. Well, uh, uh, thank you so much again, boys. Uh, we have uh, the Italian Darren and the honorary Italian Andrew, um, and I appreciate you guys coming in and, and spending a couple hours with me each and every week. So, um, folks, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors, but don't go anywhere because there's more. That's what G said. A big thank you to Andrew and to Darren for coming on again. A big thanks to Dave. A big thanks to Eric. Really fun show. Lots of different stuff when we're able to hit on football and horse racing from LaSalle, Gulfstream, Oaklawn, and then old wrestling. So uh, thank you for tuning in again. Make sure to subscribe and rate, review anywhere you get your podcast and share the show around with some of your friends who you think might enjoy it. Let's have a nice weekend, everyone.